Trash Cinema. Everybody, we're going to be discussing two movies of Van Damme, some serious Van Damager. We're going to be discussing Double Team and Knock Off. But first, here's some trailers. He's the nation's top counter-terrorist. Devil one, you're good to go. But on his final mission... Negative. It's not him. He missed the target. Now, there's only one man who can put him back in the game. That hurt. That hurt. I need merchandise. The best. Sorry, I'm closer tonight. You're open now. A world-class arms dealer. Did you open that? Yeah. With a flair for destruction. Hello, man. I'll look at you. I see nothing but trouble. What the hell? I kind of like trouble. Their styles are different. Very different. Offense gets the glory. But defense wins the game. But against an international conspiracy. I need a partner. I'm the man, baby. They'll be at each other's side. Yeah! And in each other's face. It's me. Jack's coming. Take care of business. Hong Kong and the world are poised for one of the most historic moments of the closing century. The return of Hong Kong to Chinese rule after a century and a half as a British colony. On the streets of Hong Kong, a war is raging between the criminals who rule the city and the terrorists who threaten the world. One man is caught in the middle. And he'll need all the help he can get. She's a cop? You didn't tell me she was a cop. Let's go! So you're a spy, huh? CIA! That's not a battery. That's a state-of-the-art explosive device. They can target anywhere they want. And they're going to put these bombs into clock radios, stereos, even children's toys. And once this stuff gets shipped, there's a lot of innocent people going to be in a lot of grave danger. We don't know what she did! This is obviously between you two, so if you can aim at him... signal goodbye yellow brick road goodbye yellow brick road you better buy some new cds harry's pathetic 
Jean-Claude Van Damme. Knock off. Everybody, welcome to Trash Cinema. I have Tony Tran with me, who has uh, been on the show in various ways. Uh, it's been a little while since we've done a Trash Cinema episode. You did mostly first season episodes, but we discussed some other stuff like uh, what the fuck to and back into some stuff like that. Um, if you like the show that we do today, check out his uh, podcast. It's called Above the Airwaves, and they discuss double fears and stuff like that. And I probably should stop talking now and let him introduce himself. Hi! Hi, I'm Tony. It's been a while. I miss you guys. <laughs> uh, this summer got really busy. He was starting his own podcast, and we had a weird spinoff. So we didn't really need trash cinema episodes this season. But season three, maybe we'll find some more. Um, but you and Steve were great. Uh, just, I'm so grateful you guys were able to fill in and do a couple episodes of trash cinema while I got really swamped. No, no, no worries, man. Anytime we talk about doing more for you whenever you want us to. All right. So this episode's very, very special to me, and I had to grab somebody who would truly appreciate where I'm coming from with these movies. <laughs> Double team and knockoff. We're talking like the very tail end of Van Damme's like A-lister action star studio release, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's weird. It's there's a reason I can see why after these whoosh, crashed and burned and there wasn't anything left until probably Expendables 2. Now before yeah. we jump into what these movies are about, are you a Van Damme fan? I <clears throat> I was a huge Van Damme fan. I actually watched these movies when they came out, and I loved them back in the day, and. Like I have words to say about him now, but uh, but in general though, like I was like, oh yeah, you know, like Van Damme movies, Time Cop, you know, Double Impact, which I thought I was gonna watch, but it was Double Team, and that was a kind of a, a hook in <laughs> oh, to the right. So like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Double Van Damme in one movie, yeah, Double Impact, Double Team. That's the same thing, right? No, yeah, no, okay. no, it's not. <laughs> Here's the weird thing about Van Damme: if you look at his filmography, there's so many things that like the neat words and the titles or themes. I mean, he's played. Uh, either uh, twins or a clone in three movies. Three. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many people stumble upon that? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I got hiccups. Um, or the fact that it seems like every movie has hard, death, kick, um, or yeah. blood. Hard, hard to kill. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Blood sport. Blood sport. Kickboxer. Yeah. And um, um, I just wanted to note that uh, not too long ago, Amazon Prime put out a pilot for Jean Claude Van Johnson. And if our listeners are watching that first, these next two movies will make a whole lot more sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> wow. This is, a, this is when Van Damme was on coke. Let's just say this right mm -hmm. now. This is right oh, yeah. after he met, uh, he left his first wife, or no, I think his second wife, Darcy LaPierre, who he was with for a long time, he had his kids with. And it was right after Time Cop that he hooked up with, I cannot remember her name, Gladys you know, I think I might be switching the wives. I think Gladys Porchy did his uh, wife with his kids and Darcy Lippie with later. And he became like a sex maniac and like uh, started doing cocaine. And you can see him age so fast between sudden mm. death and uh, a, a double team because he looked like he did oh, yeah. five years. Maximum risk. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, if you guys have ever seen Sean Connery before and after he retired, that was the age difference that you saw. Like, what happened in a week? Yeah, it's, it's all of a sudden all of those lines just popped out, his hair went gray, and he started making these yeah. wacky decisions. I will give him credit, though. He kind of understood how actions changed. It was going from yeah. diehard-style moves and, um, you know, like buddy cop stuff over to more international. Uh, you know, Jackie yes. Chan had just broken out, and Jet Li was just about to rise out, you know, in, in uh, Lethal Weapon 2. So I think knew that, you know, John Woo, grab him from Hard Target. Grab uh, Ringo Lamb for Maximum Risk. But it's when he connected with Sui Hark. 
Oh, it's a yeah. sweet disaster. Where he, uh, he, he rode that crouching tiger hidden dragon a little too early. Yeah, this... All right. Let's brace ourselves. Oh, by the way, um, you ever notice that people seem to fall in a camp of either Seagal or Van Damme? It's never really both. I've never really cared for Seagal. Um, honestly, like, no, I, I, I didn't mind Seagal, but I can totally see that because they're two completely different styles of everything. Yeah, his is more aggressive and brutal, whereas Van Damme seemed to be more, like, pleasing to the lady and casual fans. You know, he had a little bit of comedy thrown in and crazy action. So they're just yeah. two different ways. And, of course, somewhere Dolph Lundgren falls in the two, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, Van Damme is, for the most part, generally the underdog. Like, he always is overwhelmed with something or another. Where, where you have Seagal, who was generally the alpha dog. Like, I'm the big tough guy on the block, and I'll mess you all up. You know, so, I mean, like, that was kind of their attitudes towards most of their movies is, you know, like, one guy is, like, overwhelmed, the other guy is kind of underwhelmed during a combat. Yeah, I, I'll say this. I think Seagal has been hurt once in a movie, and he did it to himself in Machete. He shoved the sword <laughs> through himself. Whereas Van Damme gets a <laughs> snot beat out of him on a regular basis. Yes, yes. Um, so with Double Team, uh, this is actually written by a good writer. He wrote uh, John Carpenter's Vampires, he wrote Arachnophobia, Don Jacoby. But I get the feeling mm -hmm. that after he sold the script, some other people stepped in and were like, all right, let's rod him in this thing up. <laughs> like, I, I feel like the director had a lot more say in the script than the writers did. Because the, the writers of this movie, like the writer, yeah, like I said, the writer of this movie is a solid writer. And then I'm watching this movie and I'm like... I was like, is this a Jackie Chan movie? Is, is this a Chinese movie? And then like, I, w I went back and looked at the, the, the director. I'm like, oh, it's, the, it's a Chinese director. Okay, well, what other American movies has he done? He's done one other movie. Which one was that? Oh, it was, uh, it was oh, look, it's the other movie that we're doing today. He's done two American <laughs> movies, and they're both Van Damme movies. <laughs> yeah, and you can see the progression. In Double Team, there's still kind of an international James Bondy, slight American feel to it. But you go over to Knock Off, yeah. it's full-on Chinese. just happens to have a few American acts in it. Yeah. Like, in Double Team, you could totally feel that the Chinese director was, like, he, he wanted the movie to be Chinese-like, but have American aspects, international aspects. But uh, he had no idea how to use and implement, like, explosions and weapons, because... Like, just like any time that there was a gun on scene, things got weird. Yes. Or the camera work. The camera work is fascinating at the same time. Like, I'm not sure that's the angle I would have taken with this camera. Like, okay, so do you remember the scene when Dennis Rodman is showing off the power of this machine gun and the camera is like yeah. two inches from his face and there's no emotion whatsoever? Yeah. I'm like, was that a big yeah. shot? Was that intended for the film? Uh, there's there is so many bad cuts in this movie. Like I I started laughing after a while because as a kid, like I wasn't really thinking about it, but as a full grown adult, I'm sitting there going, okay, he just did a, a flying you know a flying jump kick you know off to the side, and then he lands face forward, both feet at the ground at the same time. I'm like that that's not even physically correct. Yes. Or uh, there's there's scenes where like all right, this guy's unloading you know machine gun you know rounds. And he's unloading it up the stairs, and the bullets are reflecting on the other side of the stairs. Like, they're coming, you know, like, there's, like, like ricochets from the opposite end. So, like, it was like, this, is, this isn't even close to being correct. Do you not know how guns work? <laughs> I'm watching this right now, actually, you know, while we talk. And have you noticed there's a slight effeminate quality to some of Van Damme's stuff? He always seems to be wearing, like, super tight pants. And, uh, you know, Dennis Rodman's, I think, bisexual, correct? Am I wrong? Or he just kind of played that look? I think Dennis Rodman is a space alien and oh. <laughs> kind of just runs his own game. Um, but I also think of, like, you know, like in Kickbox when he dances, it's the most exquisite thing I've ever seen in my life. And you'll never see any other action star dance like that. He feels mm -hmm. so free. And, and mind you, he was a, in ballet at the same time he was taking martial arts. So that may be yeah. some of the way that he carries himself. 
but uh, you never see this with any other action star. Like the mild um, effeminate quality. I, I kind of like that. Like, I, I, you get tired of like the over the top male machismo type character where like I'm like super I'm a super dude, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, this is like you know, like this is a person who has like interests outside of your, sta- your standard like guns and ammo. Yeah, and so, like no, very, it's refreshing. Very, he seems like he's very, very comfortable. He is. But yeah, when you see him in interviews, yeah. he looks like a nervous wreck. Yes, yes, he does. Every time, like, he's like, I, I don't know why I'm famous. I shouldn't be famous. I just I just want to make movies. You know, like, it just it feels like he's out of place, which is kind of why the Sex and Cocaine makes sense, because that's just him trying to just struggle with the fame that he has, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so this is a spy movie. It's his, uh, he, he's well known for saying that he was a James Bond fan. So I understand why he'd be, because this kind of has a crazy Chinese action. It gives him a spy's tale. I think every action star wants to do a spy movie. I uh, I don't think there's a single one that hasn't tried to do something in that vein. And yeah. this might be the closest to bonkers level that James Bond had gotten around the time that Pierce Brosnan had taken. Yeah. Oh, it, it and like it's so disassociative with itself. Like the beginning of the movie doesn't really line up with the middle of the movie, which doesn't really line up with the end of the movie. And Dennis Rodman plays no serious importance at all. And it makes no sense that he reappears in the movie at the end of it. <laughs> I feel, like you know, it's like, I feel like it should have been oh, Damon Wayans with uh, and Damon Wayans kind of thing. Like, he just shows up for ten minutes. The rest of it is a solo Van Damme versus Mickey Rourke. That should have been it. I yeah. forced Rodman in. They, they really did. They they forced that tiger into it, which made even less sense. I mean, <laughs> you're like, at the beginning of the movie, like, you know, it's like, okay, we, we got the guy you're looking for. You know, we're going to get that ops team in there, and we're going to take him down. Cool. Oh, hey, you know, he's, he's with his kids. Okay, well, we don't want to shoot him now. And like the you know, Rourke looks over at this tiger. The tiger's like, "Hey, hey, buddy!" You know, he starts like nodding upwards, like over there. There's a thing going on over there, and then he gets alerted to the fact that he's being targeted. And I'm like, "What the hell? Did a caged tiger literally just nod to to you to tell you where your enemies are? That's 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 garbage. No, oh, no, you've gone too far." Did he steal the tiger for the end of the movie? Is that the same tiger? I don't know. Like, like, I imagine cost-wise it's the same tiger, but story-wise, like, we don't have any tiger story. We just, you know, he's, at the end of the movie, he happens to have a tiger on hand, and we don't know, I mean, like, I think they're fighting at the circus, or at, no, no, they're fighting at the arena, at the arena, so, like, he would have had to taken that tiger from, where was he, in France, I think? He would have taken that tiger from France and brought it to Rome. Yeah, it's, uh... So he accidentally shoots his own... No, he doesn't shoot. Van Damme doesn't shoot his kid. Someone else accidentally shoots his kid. Someone else does, yeah. Yes, but in, in the melee, yeah. For it. So that's kind of the driving point of the rest of the movie, but Van Damme gets the snot beat out of him. Uh, but before that, he slides on a bunch of Coke cans, does this crazy flip kick. Yeah. <laughs> Coke, yeah. Like he slides in a way to where it's clearly non-recoverable, and then the camera cuts over to a new angle, and all of a sudden, like, oh, and it's a jump kick. Oh, no, like, that was a non-recoverable slip. Like, I could recognize inertia, and I know that that wouldn't have panned out right. <laughs> he would have landed on his back on that on that counter. Like, oh, God, the pain! Yeah, right? Oh, oh, oh broke a rib. I just realized Coke and saves then... them twice in this movie, and I wonder if in his head it was like, yes, Coke in my real life will save me too. <laughs> oh, man. But, um, but yeah, like, not, not soon after that, like, they get to the next scene, and he ends up, uh, what was it? He, uh, he, he fights... Oh, they they have a huge fight sequence at a hospital in the the paternity ward or the maternity ward, whatever. Like like there's a bunch of babies in cribs, and they keep like pushing them around and hopping on top of them and rolling around on them. And at no point did you really see how he got into that room because apparently he was on the ground floor. He rolled through a window, and then you know it cuts over to Mickey Rourke, 
And he's like, you know, looking at a bunch of babies. And he cuts back over to Van Damme, and he's suddenly in the baby room. And we're like, how the hell did you get in the baby room? Like, are you just teleporting around? I love that he cares about his son so much he's going to get this vengeance. But other babies, fuck him. Fuck him. I don't care about him. Yeah. I'm going to throw grenades in their cribs, and I'm going to shoot things up. I was like, no, hold on a second. <laughs> we're supposed to care about you <laughs> anyway. Because Mickey Rourke uh, it does a really, really good job in this. But he's so method and so st- that things, I feel like it was underwritten for his talent. It really was, and it was it was written poorly for his talent because like it was just so inconsistent. And I can't even imagine Mickey Rourke just trying to figure it out and was like, so I'm mad that he killed my kid, but I have no general care towards any other kids but my kid. Is that is that it? Is that my goal? Yeah, and uh, so Van Damme gets uh, hurt in the explosion. He ends up on this island. Tell me, this isn't the weirdest part of it all. Uh, so oh. he, too valuable of an asset to lose. But he had already retired, so they didn't have a problem with him retiring and quitting and coming back for one more job. But because he got injured on that job, uh, so they're gonna they're gonna yeah. force him to stay on this island, or they'll kill him. Uh, like this is so weird. They'll they'll kill him by releasing a toxin in his room, and so he has to put his thumb on this thumb pad to prove that it's him. So when he's not in this room, who cares about this toxin? I mean, Are really, you right? If you don't report, why don't you just go stand outside, catch some sun? We're good. Yeah, you know, and then they they followed up like twenty minutes later by having one of his handlers in at the island say, "Oh, and by the way, if you do manage to escape, which no one ever has, then someone you know who you don't know has to chase after you." So really, like people want to escape, but they can't. And the one time that they do want to escape, one of the random people on the island get to leave the island with them. How does that make any sense? Why does it keep these people here anyway? Oh, your your information is too valuable to lose. And that yeah. totally negates the fact that he just retired. They wouldn't have let him retire. And why keep these people here? Just give them real jobs. Just like, hey, come right. into the office and go home when you're done. Yay, because that's how it works in the normal world. Right? It's like, no, you're all high-level assassins. We're going to put together live on an island with no real policing going on. So by all means, y'all could just actually just kill each other. I mean, you have the abilities to do it. But, you know, it's, it's, this is one of those, like, we're getting too old for this shit, Riggs. Oh, excuse my language. Getting too old for this, Riggs. And it's, okay, well, we're going to put you next to these computers and have random situations that come in current. And then we have to just figure out, you know, it's like, is this, like, what's going on here? You know, is there an agenda here? And I'm like, who's, who's paying for this? Like, we never get a full idea of, like, who's doing this. Because, like, they say, like, your respective governments. I'm like, what, really? I don't, I don't believe that. Does yeah. anybody believe that? There's mythology. There is a world they could have gone into. You know, like how John Wick does a really good job of, like, the underworld of assassins, explore that world? Oh. I feel like there's a whole oh, yeah. world, this thing, this mythology, what it's like to be a spy and connect to other spies. They just ignore all of that. And I feel like there was a good 20 minutes explored that, that and they could have had other spin yeah. By the way, did you know there's actually a sequel spinoff to this called Simon Says with Dennis Rodman? Uh, same, um... Same kind of concept, different name for the character though, but it is technically really. Yeah, I'm a little saddened by that because that sounds terrible. It is truly awful. His partner in it is Dane Cook. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's bad, bad, bad. bad. Wow. <laughs> All right, so he escapes from the island. Before this, though, he does this training montage, which I I love. I I'm you know I'm a workoutaholic, and I find all these mm-hmm. weird, crazy ways to find new ways to work out. But I even look yeah. at some of that going, no, no, I'm not yeah. wrapping a rope around my friggin' neck and lifting a bathtub full of water. Nobody would do this. You'd like have a dislocated like piece of your neck. And you would never be able to move right again. Mm-hmm. But he he got to do the blood sport like stare into the camera like the camera and like shake his face back and forth very like slightly just like oh I was like 
the, the van, yeah, the, the Van Dam head shake, you know, just it's like it's a very recognizable head shake where it's just like just like flexing his neck and just like slowly shaking his head. The <laughs> only thing that we're missing is like, right? It's like the only thing that was missing was like him like doing like that and then like following it up with like slightly looking towards the left or something. <laughs> have you ever seen Welcome to the Jungle? I don't think so. Uh, him and Adam. I might have. Uh, it's a it's a comedy about um, a business retreat where everybody from the company goes on a retreat and try to bond with each other and be a, um, a, a better team. But everything goes horribly yeah. wrong. They end up on the wrong island. Van Damme is like their specialist to get them through the jungle. And there's a scene where yeah. he fights somebody and he's like, Hurrah, all slow-mo and shaky. <laughs> but then everybody else is looking at him in real time and he's just like, <laughs> And they're like, what are you doing? He's like, nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> That is wonderful. I like that. He also gets mangled by a tiger in that movie, which it might be the same tiger from Double Team. <laughs> Could be the same tiger. Yeah, yeah. That's just the one tiger. Like the tiger wasn't working for anybody. He actually had a he had he had a thing for Van Damme in general. Yeah, it's like long... his agent was like, he only works with Van Damme. I'm sorry, we're not accepting him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then like you know like so like most of the combat is very Van Damme style combat and versus like general uh, mobs and what have you. But uh, but then there's like one particular fight out of nowhere where he runs into a hotel room and the guy he's chasing gets kicked out of the room and there's a random Asian dude in there. I'm like, oh, here comes the generic Chinese-Asian, you know, wire work fight. And there it is. He's flying in the air and running around and he flung his shoes at him and he's holding a knife with his bare foot. What is going on, guys? I was convinced for years that knife was in his foot. Like, he had a fake foot yeah. or something and the knife was in there because I do not understand... Was it in his shoe in the first place? Does he just walk around with knives in his shoes? That's got to kill, man. Oh, my bunions. Oh, God, I got a knife. <laughs> uh, he's, he's Asian, you know. He's allowed. He, they, they do weird things. I don't know. Like, there's just no rhyme or reason other than the fact that there's, like, 20 different agencies floating around because Van Damme alerts them that he's going to be meeting the big bad in the middle of this, you know, town square. And so, like, just out of nowhere, it's just, like, random age. Like, like he was just in a random hotel which, you know, they discover is the hotel that his wife was held in or was staying in. So she wasn't really captured at the time. But it was like, this is just all just kind of all over the place, guys. Yeah. The, uh, the part where he starts running after her and screaming her name, I thought was the dumbest thing ever. If you see that your girlfriend's kidnapped and you're going after her and she can't escape, don't alert the bad guys. Sneak up on them, please. Yeah. When when Dennis Rodman is the guy telling him, he's like, dude, this is a trap. He's like, I don't care. He's like, all right, man, if, if Dennis Rodman is the voice of reason, you, there's there's 12 sharks and you've jumped them all. Yeah. Um, there The basketball references in this are so forced. Oh, God. Uh, let's just talk uh, about the parachute. That's a ball. What? That's a How ball for some work? reason. Which is which is straight out of a Jackie Chan movie, like rolling down the hill in a big giant ball. What, that and was then, uh, you know, Condor, right? Yes, yes. You know, yeah, it was so like really big giant. What is it with big giant inflatable balls and the Chinese people? I mean, like this, this, this scientifically would not pan out. Like Everybody the, the metaphor sky, apparently. <laughs> and then the basketball the references is like, like did did you just watch Steel or something like that? You know, because like these unnecessary basketball references make no sense. Yes, it's, it's to awful. the character at least. They keep saying it. I just wish they cast some else. Oh my god, they would have ditched all the basketball references. The crazy. I don't know. But at the same time, it's fascinating with the carnival feel and you know in Yaz's world. There's a little bit of mythology there in the fact that he has, like, this yeah. bizarre universe with, like, uh, uh, all sex types and crazy colors. It feels like a carnival, but in this one little building. And that's where he, you know, sells his weapons and stuff like that. And he has crazy weapons. He has that one that's like an earring. It's a bomb as well. Yeah. And, like, and it says he's an inventor and made most of these things. So, like, we have a feeling that he's crazy, super smart. But we don't ever see that in him as a person other than his inventions. No. 
It's he's a walking hormone. I'm almost thinking that his dick gets in the way of his logic. Like at one or time something. when he was younger, that he invented all this stuff and he's been riding it ever since. And all of a sudden, puberty hit and he's like, "Hold on, things change. Gotta go." Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's reasonable. Entirely reasonable. So, anyways, he uh, he ends up, you know, the big big fight at the end of it and. The Mickey Rourke steals his baby and has him in the middle of the Coliseum where he's planted a bunch of landmines and he has to fight this tiger and everything is just like, like I, I don't know, like it just it felt so weird. Like it didn't feel like a culminating final boss fight. It just felt like let's just have another adventure with random crap all over the place. <laughs> Before this, oh, the monks. We got to talk about the cyber. Monks. Oh, the monks! Oh, the cyber monks! John Holy Panette. crap! I forgot I about that. John Panette so much. He was such a great community. So uh, at one point, Dennis Rodman was like, you know, I got some brothers that could help. And he's like, you, you got a brother. I'm like, yeah, I got some brothers that can help. And then, like, you know, after that, we get to the point where he goes into this giant monastery. I'm like, these are my brothers. And, like, they're actual monks. You know, then he, then he actually gets to some interesting points, you know, where, like, these monks have been collecting information in Rome for centuries. I'm like, that makes sense. You know, the libraries, what have you. I just upgraded them into the new cyber age. And I'm just left going, wait, what? <laughs> One of the, the one of the monks is in the background playing. Hey, come on! Yeah. Get the door with the door. <laughs> you know they they accidentally uh, open up uh, what's got a porn browser and one of the monks like oh, oh, oh uh, internet. <laughs> You know, you, what? the reason I know for a fact that Simon Says is a sequel to this, not just because it's the same producer and Dennis Rodman plays the same kind of character, not the same name, but the monks are the exact same. That Really? Yes, the monks show up in Simon Says, same actors, same setup, so it's it's obviously in that universe. I just don't understand why he doesn't go by Yaz, he goes by Simon instead. Or maybe his name's Simon Yaz. I even thought about that before. That's possible. Or after, after a double team, you know... With the whole Rome incident, he had to change his name so they wouldn't find him. Whatever fines would be yeah, for I'm blowing sure if up you the blow up Coliseum. Coliseum, that you're in trouble, like a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the final. So scene, there we go. There's there's connection. The final cut, uh, scene uh, when you were talking about uh, Mickey Warwick, dude is cut. Holy shit! I had no idea yeah. he was so fit. Wow, like this is like you know, like Mickey Rourke was super fit in this, and you know, like later on he's still kind of fit, but like not to this extent. Like this is like slim and cut rather than uh, big and buff, which he's appeared more so, you know, recently. Have you ever watched any of his earlier movies before he started boxing? I have not. I I, I kind of want to just to see what he looked like. He was actually kind of man pretty, and then all of a sudden he, in 1990 <laughs> he stopped and he started taking up boxing and taking all his hits to the face, like changed how he looked. And um, hmm. Chris Kattan was saying that, uh, you know, the Night at the Roxbury guys were based yeah, on yeah. Mickey Rourke. Uh, they had seen him at a bar, and he was acting all goofy whatever he was laughing at him. He looks at him, he's like, holy shit, Mickey Rourke, what happened to your face? Also, Dana Carvey is doing an impersonation of Mickey Rourke during uh, Trapped in Paradise. I, I didn't get it until the last time I saw that movie. Really? Hmm. Watch it, and you can see him the whole time he's just holding his face and his and talking really light and stuff like that. <laughs> that was the shittiest Mickey Rourke impersonation ever. <laughs> a little bit, but you know, we're not known for our impressions. Yeah, uh, Van Damme was actually reported to be very insecure of Mickey Rourke being around, and they actually got into a bar fight while filming this. So really? When they had their <laughs> final showdown, it must have been really tense. <laughs> I, yeah. That's that's probably why there was a tiger involved. It was like you know, let's just let's just have him fight a tiger instead of Rourke because uh, they're actually going to fight. Yeah, the uh, the end sequence with the mines. I'm still a little lost on that one. Um, 
but I, I mean, where do you get that many minds and decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to die, <laughs> even if I get away, even if I win, somehow, I might actually die. How does he know that Van Damme's not going to step on one of those and just go, oh, well, you're standing right next to me, at least I get to kill you, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, that's something that, you know, is more of a Chinese aspect than it is a American action aspect. Because, like, there's so many, like, Chinese combat movies where, like, we're going to fight, you know, like, on top of sticks, or we're going to fight on very precarious footing. And you don't really see that in most American action films than you do in the Chinese action films. Yeah, Once Upon a Time uh, in China, those that whole series is filled with sequences like, no, nobody would do this, stop that. <laughs> yeah. We're going to fight on this precarious perching. No, no, just just get on the ground. Uh, they, you don't need every, to fight on these things. During these fight sequences, you never once see someone as they're kicking the shit out of each other for like five minutes going, hold on a second, I really have to pee. <laughs> Give me a second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pee my pants. Just, I'm going to walk over here, just don't kick me in the back of the head when I turn, okay? We're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was definitely a cluster of a bunch of random people in random combat situations that were very much undirected. But on the plus side, like, you know, it, it wasn't a generic film where... You know, only one person can fight. Like, you know, again, you know, difference between like, Asian films and American films is like Asian films. Oddly enough, everybody can fight and they go into combat for quite a bit of time. American films, you know, one or two punches, thrown out the side, thrown to the side, knocked out in a couple seconds. You know, no unnecessary fights get to straight to the point. And so, like, you get to see that in this film where you're just like, man, he fights a lot of people randomly for no reason. Yeah. Uh, we get to the end and Mickey Rourke has uh, lifted his foot in this weird, sad, touching moment where he realizes that it's over and, and he blows up, just as the tiger's about to eat his face anyway. Um, and mm-hmm. they run out of the, the Coliseum, but they are saved by all the things in the world, a giant Coke machine. Yeah. <laughs> How much did Coke pay to be in... It has to be a sponsor. It can't be just like a random, hey, we use Coke machines in our movie. Is that cool? Oh, yeah, that's fine. They had to have paid like like $5 million to get this done. Yeah, or or something because the placements were so blatantly obvious. And, like, I'm wondering if that was, like, less of a production payment and more of a Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like, in my contract, like, I owe Coke a whole lot of money. So, (laughs) you know, just uh, just put them in as much as you can. Uh, Because, like, they're, they're warehouses of... Yeah, I'm like, Mr. Van Damme, you're thinking of the wrong Coke. Oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> no, 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 it was the correct Coke, because back in Coke's original formation, they actually That's had cocaine, right. in, their, cocaine in their Coke. I totally so, you know, it was like, it was all those warehouse of non-used cocaine, because they took it out of the recipe. I'm like, can I have that? It's like, well, Van Damme, maybe, but you got to do some product placement for us. Okay. <laughs> I, I definitely recommend this one. It's not a good movie, but it moves so fast. There's so much craziness in this um, that it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, like I, I definitely, I agree. Not a good movie, but just you're just you, you want to see some of the really weird cuts and the really weird directing, you know, whatever. And you're just left going like, man, this is just this is just out there. This is way out there. Okay, so the second movie, I'm going to say something real quick. Uh, 1998. I'm talking to my college professor. Uh, I am a theater major, so he knows acting and he knows how he's done. He did a few smaller films and he worked with Val. He worked with Val Kilmer. I want to tell you this. He worked with Val Kilmer and Hal Holbrook for a long time. He was like the makeup specialist for Hal Holbrook when he did the Mark Twain stuff, and he worked with Val Kilmer right before he was cast in Top Secret uh, down in Texas. Oh. And uh, so he knows acting. He knows what's quality. And here I am trying to convince him that Knock Off is a good movie. 
Oh man. Uh, oh. I'm like the angles oh. the, the director uses, and he tries all these weird. Like you'll see the guys running, you'll see the image still back where they started, and they'll you know it, like every few seconds there's an image, and they're still running, and he'll take an image, and and as the guy's turning, he'll take out a clip, and you know it's it's so creative and so wild, and he's like Van Damme. Yeah, 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 it's great. <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> Rob Schneider. <laughs> yeah. Chinese director, huh? You're not winning me over, kid. You better stop talking. Now. <laughs> if only you could look back and you know review the things that you recommended. Yeah. All right, knock off. I went to the theater and saw this, and I convinced my friends to show it or to go to it, and um, I think I lost those friends quickly after. Yes. They're the same friends yes, that I... got into an argument with me when I was trying to say, "Hey, hold on. Uh, John Carpenter's Vampires is clearly a better movie than Blade," and they're like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> Oh, this was an age where I just kind of shake my head in frustration, like, what was I? I'm with you, you know, like, I was I was totally digging on this movie when it came out, and then I think about, you know, like, what signifiers made me really enjoy these movies, and it was like, oh, it was just a really fun movie, and at the time, I wasn't looking for good movies, I was looking for things that were just fun, and maybe, like, clap my hands and go, yeah, that was great! Now, Double T, not... I actually think is a legitimately fun movie. By the way, you argued on your, uh... Not argue, but you were saying that uh, people say that The Saint isn't a good movie on your Val Kilmer episode. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I say that it is. I know that you guys love it. I can't stand it. And I think subconsciously it's because it opened the same week as Double T. Why open two spy movies <laughs> on the same day? Why open two spy movies <laughs> on the same day? What were you guys thinking? Um, and Double Team got just destroyed by The Saint. And I think subconsciously I'm like, I hate this movie. Bunch of dicks. <laughs> And just like I talked to a lot of people, and a lot of people don't like that movie, and so it was one of those situations where it's like, man, I love this movie, but you know, it's it's tough sometimes because like it's yeah, it's a it's a cheesy spy flick, and there's there's nothing really to it, yeah. but uh, like I don't know if you're tired of it. Anyway, so um, this movie, oh, go go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say the reason I said all that is because this opened the week after Blade, and Blade just destroyed this movie. And you know what? Upon reflection, Blade is infinitely better than Vampires and <laughs> Knockoff. I don't know what I was smoking, man. <laughs> There's no way this movie was ever going to connect with the American audience, except maybe a cult following. Just because Rumble in the Bronx made $28 million, which is basically nothing money, there's no reason mm -hmm. to think that, well, Van Damme should make a Jackie Chan-style movie, and it's going to make a ton of money. These people are insane. No. On the plus side, Van Damme basically played Van Damme in this movie. Like He just felt like a coked-out cokehead throughout the entirety of this movie. Okay, I don't know if it's him being totally spastic, or it's the Chinese style of comedy. Do you ever notice their comedy used to be a little more exaggerated? There's no subtlety whatsoever in it. Like, if you watch the Mr. Magoo movie, which was directed by... Yeah. Um, Oh, doggone it. Stanley Tong, uh, who did Rumble in the Bronx, he approaches it in such a, like, oh, that, no, you're not being subtle in any way whatsoever. That kills the comedy. I cannot stand comedy from that style of filmmaking. It does, it's just not funny yeah. to me. I think uh, I think one of the real charms in that style of comedy is the actor. Like, the actor, like, Jackie Chan pulls it off because, like, he can have that serious face and he had that super goofy face, and it, it, it suits the comedy style. Yeah. But um, like, if you don't have the right people running with it, you just you can't do it. Like, it's just not possible. And Van Damme is not meant for this kind of comedy. He's meant for the dry comedy that's in the show. Um, you know, kind of like um, self-depreciating kind of dry sense of humor. Not yeah, yeah. It it definitely it definitely suits him. I mean, like it's just you know, like it's how he portrays himself and how he carries himself and his very like you know you know partially effeminate type of you know just. Like meaner, you know, like it's just it's it's a very soft funny rather than like this hard forced funny. Yeah. 
Yeah, and but I'll give him credit for attempting. He's never been um, afraid to attack something. Think about every level yeah. that things have changed his career. Uh, up until uh, Universal Soldier, he was kind of playing the same thing over and over and over, with the exception of Double Impact. Double Impact is highly underrated for the fact that he does... And they are wildly different characters. People keep saying that, oh, mm -hmm. he can't act. Well, look at that movie, and he's playing two different characters that both are convincing as who they are. Yeah. Um, and then Universal Soldier, Hard Target, Time Cop, kind of all the same, Sudden Death, Street Fighter, they're all the same. It wasn't until he got back to the things got crazy again and seemed more relaxed to try something. Yeah. Now, what was the, there, there's a movie that I really enjoyed that came out in the 90s. It was uh, Van Damme, and he was a... Like inner city school teacher teaching kids capoeira, you know, it was like, oh, this is really fun. I mean, like, it's just him in a non over the top character, you know, that's not like super action oriented. He's a teacher type person, and like, oh, he can actually do more than just be, you know, the Van Damme flip kicking blood sport dude. I think you're thinking of Mark Casco. Only the strong. The was it Mark Cascos? Yeah. Oh, that is the Cascos. Why was I thinking Van Damme? <laughs> it's okay. It's from the director of like every other Van Damme movie from that era, as Sheldon Leddick. Um, Oh, that's what it was, yeah, because of this. Of, okay. Anyway, so I'm, I'm bad with names and faces now. You all know it's my secret. Um, um, so this is, okay, I'm trying to wrap this plot around my head. This is written by Stephen D'Souza, who wrote 48 Hours and Die Hard and about 12 other really great action movies this time. This is the most, yes. this is the strangest. I, I guarantee you that his script was destroyed and <laughs> written by someone who could credit. Because this is, I'm, not, I'm, this is lunatic. Yeah. It's it dumpster fire at best. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, Rob Schneider, Van Damme, running a jean company. Uh, Van Damme used to be like the king of the knockoffs. He used to do like fake uh, versions of the real deal. And now they're trying to go legit. And they find out that there's bombs in his pants. Uh, well, they don't, they don't find out that they're in his pants. They just find out that there's micro bombs being transferred somewhere and somehow. They don't figure it out it's from his pants until later on. Oh. Right, that's right, when he gets a little hand scan and he puts it over his crotch, which, which is yeah. He's like, Ooh. he'll find any way to get his clothes off. There are two moments in this movie where he rips his clothes off, and there really doesn't seem to be a reason to camera on him. <laughs> no, no, it's just super, super weird. And super weird movie, every single time. Yeah, this movie's so, like, not American in any way whatsoever, the comedy, but also we get the, the rickshaw chases, which fascinated me. Yeah. My, friends, my friends were literally like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, come on, just enjoy this, or go watch something about Mary. Just It's playing on the next screen, just leave. <laughs> his, his, his knockoff shoes that he got from his buddy blows out, and was like, shoes don't blow out like that, especially in the middle of a rickshaw race. Shoes don't blow out as if you were a werewolf busting out of your shoes. This isn't the monster squad. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that, that's exactly what it looked like. It looked like just like, like what the hell? Uh, like, there's, 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 there's bad shoes, but I mean, like, that's, that's simply just, there were explosives in there. <laughs> Those shoes were put together with boogers and hate. I mean, they were... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so his friend Eddie... Um, uh, there's a sequence where whenever they see each other, they kind of do this like punch, punch, shoot, shoot kind of thing, which is so, yeah. un it, there's something so fake and like weird about it that I feel like they're in two different movies. Like, I don't know what is going on. Everybody's voice is dubbed in this. It, it feels like that. Like, it feels like all the voices are off like a half second. Like whoever put the voices into this just didn't do it quite right. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I can't tell you for sure because they're, they're using English. They're in Hong Kong, so they speak English in Hong Kong. So there's no reason to dub this other than the fact that you're just trying to get a better sound quality. But whoever is dubbing it is just so not used to dubbing that everything was just slightly off at yeah. most points. Well, it's like Spaghetti Westerns. They would film Spaghetti Westerns silent. 
and um, because they would get people from Spain, from Germany, from Italy, and America, and it would just end up this disaster of conversations. So they couldn't really record that way, so they would just film it silently and then add it in later. That's what this feels like, because I feel like I'm watching some of these actors talk, and they're completely like, Yeah, I'm American boys. How's it going? And I was like, no, 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 no. This is Hong Kong. Nobody talks like that here. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like, I was always weirded out when uh, I was, like, watching Hong Kong movies and someone speaking English, and it's Queen's English, not American English. I'm like, oh, that's right. It was occupied by the Brits, not the Americans. Yeah. Their English is going to sound very, very European. And it always seems like two people. Two people doing every voice. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have this whole thing where, like, the Russian mafia is after his friend, and they kidnap him, they pretend to... But it wasn't him because he was going to cheat in the race. So he's off in a van while the other guy gets kidnapped and he gets killed. And then Van Damme gets involved with it. But then there's cops involved. And uh, uh, then they they track Eddie down and he opens up this safe with a rocket in it. Not a bomb. Not C4. When you open it up, it just blows up. There's literally a rocket. Who puts a rocket inside of a safe? How is that even possible? As, As a trap, especially, you know. Like, I can oh. see them just shopping around. You want to use C4? Oh, no, that, that's too reasonable. Uh, you think we can fit this in there? Uh, yeah, sure. You have to have enough room for it to take off, to launch. You know, the fire has to go somewhere, you know, to, to make the rocket go. I don't, I don't know how science works. Does that work like that? It uh, has to, apparently, in Chinese cinema. I'd like to take a moment to really go over one glazed-over fact. Um, Rob Schneider's character is apparently a, a spy. Yes, this is yet another spy movie. And uh, they discover that he's a spy, and it flips out Jean-Claude Van Damme's character, and then that's kind of what led them to Eddie's place to find the miniature bomb, which would, you know, ruin everything in the known world or whatever. But anyway, continue. Um, Dennis, I gotta say this. Um, Rob Schneider as a CIA agent. Denise Richards was more <laughs> convincing as a biochemist, brain engineer, whatever she was in that Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, that tells yes. you how bad Rob Schneider is as, as a spy, because I didn't buy one bit of yeah. You know, honestly, like, this is like this, like the, the, the early peak of Schneider's career, like Judge Dredd, this movie, and Surf Ninjas, which, you know, I, I will defend Rob Schneider and Surf Ninjas to the day I die. <laughs> we did that episode last year. <laughs> yeah, and this is right. This is basically the last gasp. He did that TV show, Men Behaving Badly. And uh, yeah. but then all of a sudden, uh, Deuce Bigelow comes out and makes like $90 million. And all of a sudden, he's back. And he faded yeah. away again. He keeps doing this. this up and down, up and down, up and down. I feel mm-hmm. like Rob Schneider's hard to work with. Or he has a very sense of how his career is going. And his agents are like, you get that you're like five foot tall and no one likes you, right? And sometimes you're funny, sometimes you're terribly unfunny. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do Big Stan. I'm going to be like an action star. And I'm going to be in prison. And David Carradine's going to be my mentor. Are you sure you want to do this one? Dude, I will fight you to death over how wonderful Big Stan is. I have recommended Big Stan to no, no, so no, no. Big my Stan, friends. Big Stan is good, and he's actually actually Rob Schneider is a lot tougher than people perceive. Because I've oh, seen yeah. some of the stuff. Yeah. But uh, it's not about I, me. I, it's not about me. It's oh, not about you. It's about the uh, general audience perception. And I think selling of the yeah. star is very difficult. No. And his his next movie was terrible too. So. <laughs> what was that? The, the but. Yeah, yeah, where he's like he's some sort of like religious chosen leader type character, and like he's like, no, go back to Big Stan. That was much, that was much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, the green, the green fire thing. Explain this to me. I've watched this movie like four times now. I still don't exactly understand fire from the bombs. I, I, you know, honestly, like it's probably some sort of reaction to the miniaturization of the of the bombs. Whatever it is that makes them small and explode at great force makes the fire green. 
Like, I, I don't even know why that's important, other than the fact that it kind of looks like a firework. But that's about it. Like, there, it plays no relevance other than the fact that the bombs are green. Remember this. This is very important. Why is this important? <laughs> we can't tell you. It's a terrible special effect. Uh, somewhere in all of this is Lee the Roshan as a uh, executive for the Gene Company. Is not an executive for the Gene Company. She's with the uh, NSA or something like that. FBI. Some sort of some sort of internal affairs group with the spy agency who's running internal affairs on what's got on Rob Schneider's spy group because apparently there's something crooked going on in there which you know we don't find out until the, until the end of the movie and like it's just it's it's a spy movie wrapped up in an action movie which is basically like the last previous movie is like a spy movie wrapped up in an action movie I'm like this is just this is just bad spycraft <laughs> and she can handle her martial arts i'll give you i'll give her credit for that i i haven't seen her beyond this movie but she's really good at handling the action uh who's mm-hmm. terrible at handling the action is paul sorvino who should not be <laughs> i feel like there was a list of people they went out to uh, let's go for christopher walken uh let's go for james Conn. let's go for something then like well, who do we have left uh um uh let's see uh, rip taylor and <laughs> paul sorvino you know I, I will I will put dollars to donuts that there was just some dude at the airport in the international section just looking for actors like oh hey Rob Schneider you want me in a movie hey you want me in a movie yeah. like literally like it's just whoever happened to be in town at the time yeah it's like oh they had some sort of like uh, what do you call those festivals like MyFed when when they try to sell movie international audiences yeah. it's like they were just sitting yeah. out there like waiting for someone to show up all right who do we got who do we got <laughs> is it this Robin bring him in bring this Robin in this could be great. <laughs> Who can sell what? international? No. You know, uh, Rob Schneider, I think, sold well for international audiences because he had that kind of style of humor. Like, you know, Mr. Bean, but, like, uh, more sarcastic, I would say. Uh, not Mr. Bean, I'm sorry, Rowan Atkinson. That was insulting to the actor. So I can see, like, on international sales, this must have done very well, but it must have been a tough, tough deal with uh, Columbia Pictures to try to put this out on Labor Day. Yeah, just, just, I can't, I can't. Anyway, so... so... <laughs> That's a giving up moment. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to really get into the conversation of what this movie is about. And this, this movie was just, it was more of a cluster than Double Team, which was a cluster in its own. And yeah. I'm just, so I, I can't, I don't know. There's so many ideas. There's so many villains. It seems like everybody in this movie is bad except for Rob Schneider. I mean, at one point, someone was either was a villain or pretending to be a villain or pretending to be good and is a villain. We get to the end with the boat. Uh, by the way, the, the, all these action sequences are truly fascinating. Their films sometimes kind of shitty, but I think they're just so creative and wild. Even if they don't make any sense, you gotta go. I have never seen that before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The um, what do you call those things? The storage containers as they're sliding around and crushing people, and he and Van Damme is sliding around with uh, the two guns. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's amazing. That is absolutely. I've never seen. It's just, you know, like that's kind of like a lot of like the big wow factor of seeing some of these movies done by international directors. And, you know, this is kind of like what you were saying earlier, that uh, Van Damme was starting to see that the tide was turning and, you know, getting getting in on some of the international action is going to be a good idea. And, you know, like a lot of people, you know, give critical acclaim for, once again, I'm going to bring it up, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I went to the theater to watch that. And I'm like, this is like every other Chinese movie I've ever seen. What's the big deal, guys? <laughs> I know. I was kind of like, um... All right, cool. I guess it made a lot of money. Does that mean more will be made? No, just hero. Yeah. All right, never mind. <laughs> yeah, and like it, I think one of the biggest things was you know, like you were saying, this is just a whole lot of things that people haven't seen before, haven't been introduced to before, and it was a huge thing coming over because the production value was really good, and the fact that you know, like this is all new, but you know, in in 
in what's called uh, in knockoff, the production value was mediocre at best, and so people were seeing this and like you were hopping onto it, like oh this is all new and interesting and really cool, and this is probably what what drove you into getting your profession. Like no, take a look at this movie. This is really interesting. And then like now after the fact down the road, you've seen this all so much, you're like wow, this is actually pretty poorly put together. Yeah, they say the budget on this and doubled to the same. But look at the quality that you get in Double Team, and the names are that yeah, involved yeah. are a little bit better. I feel like this star bandam. This feels like the kind of thing that would have starred Dolph Lundgren or someone that was kind of like uh, maybe a Mark Cascos, you know, someone who couldn't pull in a thirty million dollar budget, maybe like a fifteen at best. Uh, I just don't see yeah. where that money went. Yeah, you, you can tell that this is like the tail in the desperation. Maybe, maybe they have the same amount of money, but in all reality, like he just shoehorned half of this money into the previous film for the CG. Yeah. And then in this film, uh, it was just like, okay, well, what's, left, what's left over? We have this. Okay, well, we have to make the movie because we're contractually obligated, but we, we shoehorned the money into the previous film, so this is what you get. All right, so we get to the end of the movie. There's one thing that really, really bugs me uh, besides the whole thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Par- Paul Sorvino, at the end, he, he has the bombs on his boat that Lila Roshan pulls out of her uh, shirt. She throws them on there, yes. and, and it blows up. He has it in his hand, and it blows up, and you see him like pull back as the fire goes everywhere. Then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like five minutes later, they're in a bar and they're like, "I wonder if this thing still works." And they show Paul Sorvino in his like little room working on this massive bomb. No scarring, no burnt, no injury whatsoever. Name from the acid that was thrown on him. He seems completely mm-hmm. fine. And all of a sudden, whoop! And he blows up. Um, what? Wasn't the previous ending fine where he blew up on the ship? Wasn't that okay? Apparently, they needed a, a second blow-up with some witty commentary, which is all that really happened was that uh, Rob Schneider's character grabbed the remote and was like, yeah, I mean, just imagine turning this into a universal remote that controls like your TV, your garage, everything. And Jean-Claude was like, oh, I don't know. Click, 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 click. Explosion. Oh, I wonder what's going on over there. Like, he's like, just very deadpan. You know, it's like, oh, a big giant green explosion next to the fireworks that were just displayed. Could that have been related to the fact that I was messing around with this detonator? <laughs> it's, it's a stinger that's completely unnecessary. Um, mm-hmm. Right after this, Columbia Pictures decided, I, I kid you not, they said in their Hollywood Reporter contract thing, whatever, that they said, uh, uh, Van Damme has made a lot of money for us in the past, and we feel like we owe him, so we're going to do Universal Soldier The Return. And I was like, you don't really, sh- you shouldn't announce to the whole world that you're, you're like, oh, we feel sorry for Van Damme. He used to do good things for us, now he's been doing bad things for <laughs> us. We're just going to throw him a bone. <laughs> Which... I want to tell you this: Universal Soldier: The Return is worse than both of these movies. <laughs> oh, oh, that's terrible! I don't want to. I, I'm glad I didn't watch that. Yeah, it's it's filled with non-actors. Van Damme is the best actor in the whole thing. It's filled with wrestlers and like uh, Kiana Tom, who who had a show on ESPN where she worked out in the morning. That was it. It's it's a, a disaster. And after that, it was just straight to video for you know. Basically, I mean, everything that comes out now is just video on demand or barely released. So, you know, he, he still works. He still does a good job. He still gives a shit on, like, Seagal. But you see, this is where it all kind of went wrong. Yeah, I think, I think I'm going to follow this cast with a, a viewing of JCVD. I need a palate cleanser. I, I need something that almost won him a BAFTA because it was so good. He turned down a Joss Whedon in order to do double t- I shit uh-huh. not. Uh-huh. I think it was called Racing for the Sun or something like that where um, his brain is – or. Uh, a scientist whose dying's brain was taken out and put into a convict, and I guess people are after him because he knows the, the cure or something for something that the government doesn't want him to know, and he goes on the run or whatever, and Joss Whedon wrote it. And he said, nah, it's okay, I'm going to make this other crazy thing because I want to play a spy. Um, I, I wonder where that script is. I wonder if anybody will ever star. Uh, I'm, I'm super sad that you told me that because one of my favorite 
favorite things is dumb people playing smart characters. You know, like I'm I'm a big fan of dumb actor, smart actor. Yeah. Where it's like let's find let's find like a big muscly dumb actor and let's let's have him say smart things like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminator or and Junior or you know Stallone and, and like anytime at like Tango and Cash where he's like the smart you know yeah. dude. I'm like like <laughs> oh man. How have we not discussed Tango and Cash? Holy shit, what a disaster that movie is. I love that movie. Like, yeah, right. like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, no, like, as an adult, like, this is terrible. Like, this is fun as all hell, but, like, by all standards of what a good movie qualifies as, this does not qualify as a good movie. Yeah. Both movies end with some of the worst music you've ever heard, which we're going to end this episode on. But before we go, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rock Entertainment and on uh, his website, uh, Among Above the Airwaves. I almost said Among the Airwaves. Above the Airwaves. They're better than the Airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> we are We are better. <laughs> And we told we totally have to do like another we should do a Stallone double feature. There's Tango Cash. There's above the uh, over the top. There's um, Cobra. Oh my God, Cobra is so terrible. Cobra. Demolition Man. Demolition oh, Man is man. so amazing. Demolition Man. And let's let's bring back uh, Simon Says. You know. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that is it for us. Anything you want to say before we go? Um. Thanks for having me. And uh, you know, just I look forward to being back on again. I can't believe we used to just do like 20 minute episodes. We are almost to an hour on this. That's how much I love and hate these movies at the same time. I, I blame I blame me. Like I've gotten all my friends into the habit of doing hour long episodes because we just we just go back and forth on just all the things that we can. Yeah. All right. So let's listen to this insanely awful music. I can't believe it. you would think the double team song with Dennis Rodman kind of going. <laughs> like he's not even singing at all. He's just ridiculous. This is the nope, knockoff knock song. The knockoff theme song. I'm, gu- I'm guessing this style of music is really popular in Hong Kong. Not here. It's. It definitely feels like the Asian new wave style of music. That's enough for everybody. We're gonna we're gonna show some mercy. Have a good night. <laughs> good night. Trash Cinema. The California Coast, playground of America, until something deep beneath the sand turned it into Blood Beach. Water may be the safest place to be. Rated R. I haven't seen a car in 50 miles. You know what I just thought of, right? Kenny and Darla. You believe that story? That they did go looking for her head? They only found the car. They never found her head. What's he doing? The hell is that? He dumped something down that pipe. Wrapped in a sheet. Is this your idea of a little adventure? I'm just gonna look. Hello! You know the part in scary movies where somebody does something really stupid and everybody hates them for it? This is it. Every 23rd spring, for 23 days, it gets to eat. Eat. What the hell is that thing? Go, 
Welcome to Trash Cinema. It is our spring break special. If you wonder where our new episodes are, hey, well, we get busy. <laughs> one of us is in school, and one of us is just at work all the time. Um, so we just kind of do specials here and there. But in the summer, I think uh, my co-host, Kersey. How's it going, Kersey? Hey, what's going on? You're, well, we were kind of thinking about like what we're going to do this summer, and it's... So there's not like pressure on you, and if you can't make a, a certain date or whatever, you know I have something else to fill in. So this summer for season three of Trash Cinema, it's going to be a revolving cast. Uh, Kersey will probably hop in, and maybe we'll do one a month for the summer, and then uh, I'll have other people hop in. Yeah, I mean that, that sounds good. I got a lot of uh, stuff to catch up on. It's my last year of school, so yeah, I don't want to know. Gotta you be with, getting like, that career ready? soon. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so for our spring break special, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, one that I chose, Blood Beach, and one that you chose, Jeepers Creepers. Yeah. Uh, which one should we do first, Blood Beach? Yeah, I I didn't think it was going to be this um, slow. <laughs> I just heard legendary <laughs> stories about this movie. It's not on DVD. It's only ever been on VHS. It's kind of like a lost movie, except it's been posted on YouTube like 80 times. Mm. Yeah, it, it can stay lost, I suppose. I, I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> uh, here's the thing: is um, this is from? I think the reason this is lost is a, it's from Compass International Pictures, which is the company that did Halloween and Hell Night, and then they went out of business immediately afterwards. And it was produced by Run Run Shaw. And now we discussed one of their movies earlier last year. Um, shit, what was that? The Kung Fu flick that we talked about that they did. Um, oh, uh, was it Taoism Drunkard? Uh, no, it's the one that's after Wu Tang Clan. Uh, 36 Chambers, the Shaolin. Oh, okay. So I think a lot of their stuff that they produce for America um, is kind of lost. Um, let's just say uh, this is made for a very particular audience that has a lot of patience. <laughs> I would say so. It's it's one of those uh, creature features without a creature, basically. It, it takes infinite amount of patience to wait for the final reveal and i ha i have to admit the creature was kind of cool it, it was uh sort of like uh um it or not it what am i talking about i'm talking about the thing yeah about john carpenter's thing kind of had that vibe to it that like kind of slimy almost um flower-esque monster yeah it's you know uh I mean? it's not it's not as elaborate by any means uh, as the thing even though it was made like the oh, year no. prior there's no there's no real like um animatic work or not animatic animatronic work no, it just kind of sits there, and they put, like, you know, monster screams behind it, kind of standing and posing uh, <laughs> in a cave, which is fine. It, it's fine, but, you know, if you're going to have a monster movie, it kind of behooves you to have a monster in it. Yeah. Uh, well, it, the first half hour of this movie, I think, is uh, rather intriguing, you know, kind of building the idea. But then it kind of repeats it over and over and over without changing how it's done. It's like, oh, yeah, I got it. You you almost see the people going out going, dude, you know. You know. You've heard the stories about people getting sucked out of the sand. Knock it off. No, yeah, that, that was one of the things that I noticed, too, when I was watching it, is that they completely focused on the wrong details and tried to 
it, it seemed like it, it was three different people who were directing the movie, but none of them told the other ones what they already did yet, so they just repeated the same thing. Yeah. So, like, the, the way the formula works is if you see that old homeless lady pushing that cart, someone's about to die. Yeah, don't go near time. her or actually grab her and get her off the sand. <laughs> yeah, like, every time she appears in a scene, she does something, like, stupid or something silly, and then, you know, it, it follows somebody near her on the sand, and then they get sucked in, and that's the movie, basically. I'm uh, I'm looking at this. There was a remake of this a few years ago called Sand. Why don't you just stick with Blood Beach? Sand just sounds so lame. Blood Beach, at least, while it's clearly a grindhouse drive-in kind of title, it catches your attention. Right. Sa- like, Sand? People are going to confuse that for Dune or something, and they're going to be horribly <laughs> disappointed. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Kennedy, so, oddly enough, was... isn't that? Ugh. All right. Well, anyway, uh, what was actually interesting, I tried to look up something about the movie, so I had something salient to say about it, but I couldn't find anything. Like, you know, I was looking through trivia facts. All I could find is, hey, John Saxon's in the movie, and this is a total ripoff of Jaws the Revenge. Did you know that? That was <laughs> well, all I could find. Well, Jaws Revenge came out six years after this, so how's that, huh? <clears throat> what? I'm sorry. No, not, not Jaws Revenge. I'm talking about uh, Jaws 2. Uh, there it was a there there like there was so many line parodies of like the catchphrase of Jaws two, which is just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Like they repeat that line. Yeah, and you can't get to it. Movie, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, John Saxon by this point was doing tons of these exploitation films, and I, I kind of enjoy him in it. Burt Young is doing his typical grumpy old man, but it's still enjoyable. But everything else about it sucks. Yeah, I mean, definitely I would say John Saxon is probably the best part of the movie just because he gives a very earnest performance, whereas everyone else is terrible. Yeah. The whole time I'm watching it, though, going, you know, I could be watching Nightmare on Elm Street instead. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or Enter the Dragon. <laughs> uh, I don't recognize anybody else in the cast. Um, the director, no, nothing. There's a lot of names in here that clearly like popped up and disappeared pretty quickly. Uh, I mm. apologize for suggesting this. <laughs> It's a product of its time. It's interesting, but um, I, yeah, it definitely wears on you after the first 20 minutes. What I thought was interesting, though, is at the very end is when they discuss, it goes, well, what happens after you've blown it up? Is it dead or what? And then it shows all those people back at the beach, and you slowly see through the whole credits all these little holes starting to form all over the beach. Mm-hmm. I, I think it might have been trying to set up a sequel like it had babies or something. <laughs> Blood Beach 2. It's still not safe to go onto the beach but go ahead, go in the wa- get in the water. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Piranha are in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was another one I was considering uh, choosing. I did, but I thought that would be good as, one. like, a big discussion, talking about the remake, the sequel, and then the, the sequels to the uh, both movies. Yeah, because I felt that way, too, because I'm actually a huge fan of the remake of Piranha. Yeah, it's great. The second one isn't bad, but it's it nowhere nearly has as much magic as the, the remake. Magic? That's not the word mm, I want. Yeah, it, it it got really weird with it. But what was what, the, the second one? I can't remember. It's been a while. But is that the one where Vin Rames had like a, a motorboat leg or something? <laughs> I think he does. He loses both legs in the first movie. <laughs> I think they attach something. I remember David Hasselhoff's in it. It's nowhere nearly as good, but it's still like just bonkers and it's like gortastic uh, ideas. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's it, weird. It, this uh, cost. This cost. Um. Two million dollars, and I was gonna guess maybe four hundred thousand dollars at most. Yeah, where did the money go? I mean, obviously, one probably one of the biggest parts was um, the, the the monster because the monster was pretty big. Or I, I don't know. I guess it could have, maybe it was small comparative now. But 
like it you know like it was just a, a, a model or something that they shot but i mean it looked pretty cool yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I mean, that there, kind of I mean, money there's no way it costs that much. Yeah, I feel like that kind of money should give you a lot of stop motion or some animatronic stuff, you know, high level effects. I mean, if you look at the Howling, tons of special effects in it, and um, at least a kind of well known list of like B movie actors, and that thing was done for one point two million dollars. Don't tell me you couldn't make Blood Beach and, and give you some killer effects for two million. Someone clearly stole the money. I just, I also have to point out, there's no blood in the movie no. for a movie called Blood Beach. I wanted to see it shooting but, out you know, of the sand. Yeah, kind of a nightmare in Elm Street or kind of like uh, Army of Darkness. Yeah, you know, just, definitely. Just I want to see gore flying out of it. Like, just He doesn't like bones, so he shoots them back out. And if you, can't, if you don't have that much money, an easier way to call it Blood Beach and actually have blood is like if the monster can like intuitively know that there's blood in the beach, like can smell it, so if someone's bleeding there, he'll snatch him up like that. Yeah, that would like, make like a sense. shark, like a sand shark. Right, but it was, I think I think it was supposed to be a Venus flytrap. I think was the what was what they were going for. Yeah, I, I, somewhere I don't know if it's in the remake, but I remember reading something about it that it was actually an alien from another planet that stayed there. And I'm like, the beach is huge. Uh, yeah, we can just go to every beach. <laughs> so I can't I can't remember this. You're gonna have to remind me because it's one of those movies that just after it goes on for a while, you kind of forget what's happening. Yeah, you just kind of get bored, but. Um, the the underground part that the creature was living in, did it make that part, or was it already built, but was just living there? Uh, you know, I, I'll lie and say, uh, it already existed? They, uh, that would, the only way that would make sense, it kind of, it looked, you know, like it had, um, shelves and, you know, uh, 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 like beams that were supporting it, so there's no way that that creature was making it. Well, think about it, he had only been eating, I keep saying he, like it's a, a guy, uh, but it has been, um eating people for what five days either he was really really focused on building that labyrinth cave or and it's like oh man i'm famished at all this work i better go eat somebody <laughs> it's kind of yeah it's like one of those things when you're trying to lose weight and it's like you know i gotta finish this project then i can have a snack so maybe <laughs> goals people have goals just like this monster that's that's all I can really say about uh, Blood Beach. I think it's best if we just uh, shimmy on over to your selection, Jeepers Creepers, which I forgot was a spring break movie. Yeah, uh, that that was um, one with Justin Long and some, some other lady. Uh, he was uh, getting home from college. Yeah, they were going to go visit their parents uh, on spring break. Now, I remember seeing this trailer. People were buzzing about this movie, and I got really excited about it. Um there is 50% of this movie that is absolutely jaw-dropping amazing, and 50% of it that's kind of awkward, and the more they explain, I'm, I start not to like it as much. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that they had sort of a lore for this creature, because they wanted to make something different, but it kind of made it cliche uh, when, when you try to explain it. Yeah. The 23 years, every 23 years, he gets to eat for 23 days, and I was like, what keeps him from eating for 24 uh, what stops him from just continuously eating? I mean, does he hibernate for the rest? Is there any sort of... I thought Is there some sort of rule that says they won't mess with him if they don't mess with uh, the townsfolk after 23 days? No, as far as I know, nobody even knows about the creature except for the, uh, the psychic lady. <laughs> 23 days. He's like, I'm good. I'm going to go back into hibernation. I, I have a, I'm tired from all this eating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which it doesn't even make sense either because his body regenerates naturally. So why is he? Because like the, I think the the idea of the monster was that he needs to harvest the parts that he needs to keep alive. 
which is a really cool idea, but they established that he can regenerate his body. Yeah. So what's the point of having to steal organs when they just naturally grow back? That didn't make any sense. Well, yeah, there's that scene where um, later when she runs him over like 50 times, they filled him with so many bullets, and he's kind of a mess. And you would think that if he could move, he would crawl a little bit, and then he would grab something and absorb whatever he needed from it. But no, he kind of just, like you said, is like T-1000, you know, rebuilding himself instantly and goes after him again. No, it wasn't it wasn't instant, but it, like that was probably one of the coolest parts of the movie where he's like limping to the police station and then his like his leg starts to grow back and then he just starts walking naturally, which yeah. is probably one of the cool which is kind of a simple effect, but it was so cool and creepy that um I got to say like their their whole their their creature in this movie is probably one of my favorites. It's one of the most interesting and dark. Like he has like this weird huge well, like blade that he has. It looks like a cross or something, which yeah. is awesome. It's definitely like one of the coolest creatures that nobody really talks about anymore. Well, I think what the problem is with this franchise um, is the second one made a lot of money as well, but I think it let a lot of people down. And then Victor Salva, um, all of a sudden everybody was talking about the fact that he got busted for uh, child molestation or something like that back in 89. And I think people washed their hands of him. So Jeepers Creepers 3 never got going, even though they keep talking about, oh, yeah, Cathedral, any day now, it's going to go into production. And it's just still, after all these years, it hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah, uh, yeah, that'll probably kill a career. Yeah. Uh, Well, some some people's careers get ruined for that. Some of them don't, but he was one of the ones that did. Yeah, I don't know. I think at this point, by the time they get part three going, it'll be be 23 years since the first movie. Yeah, I know that that's so unfortunate because it's such a creative and cool monster. But you know, it's it's one of those things that probably is never going to happen. And, and it's unfor- and also it's not necessarily a shame that what happened to him. <laughs> but it's it's also terrible that the the second movie was kind of was a huge letdown. I, I liked kind of the concept of because um, the creature was basically picking off these people, these kids that were in a a school bus, and it was like trapped outside of a cornfield. And he would just pick them off if they try to leave, mm-hmm. which I kind of like. The, I like that idea, but conceptually, it's cool. But when you watch the movie, it's like an hour of in a school bus, and that's pretty boring. Yeah, hour of uh, terribly I mean, this, annoying teenagers screaming at each other. And um, what I don't like is also I mean, this, uh, the uh, he gets a little more comical. Jeepers Creepers ditches a lot of the scariness, and he starts doing a little bit of the Freddy Krueger gag kind of stuff, and I didn't like that. Yeah, like um, it, it, if this was written directed by the by the person to the first movie, it was. I didn't actually look into this, but yeah, the second one definitely didn't feel like the same movie. Really, Jesus. Yeah, same That's director. That's down because, Salva. like, I feel like yeah, I feel like in the first movie, he just like the creature would have just peeled up the, the the roof of that school bus and just tore everyone to pieces. That actually would have been more interesting. Like um, what I do like about the second one is the kid in Ray Wise. Um, Ray Wise is one of those character actors you see a lot in horror movies. Uh, you know, they're they're beating the shit out of the creeper, and I thought that storyline was pretty cool. No, I don't. It's, it's been a long time. I don't remember that one, or at least that part. I just remember the, the school bus stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, again, the the first movie is uh, very interesting. I love the cinematography of probably the first half hour. Uh, it's filmed in such a way that it really builds tension, especially when they finally get to the, the church and then he falls into the well and uh, has that really long sort of pan around like um, the evil dead yeah. where you're just kind of looking at his lair and there's just bones and bodies everywhere. 
Um, yeah, it feels course, like a seventies horror movie. It feels a little <clears throat> bit like a Wes Craven kind of thing uh, for the first half, and then it starts diving into like almost like a retro eighties. Like you know how they always had the mascots in the eighties. Uh, it felt like one of those kind of movies for a little bit. Yeah, but I like that he didn't talk. That gave him kind of a huge yeah. push in my book because as awesome as Freddy Krueger is, the later editions of the later movies start to get a little boring, or at least kind of get too cheesy. Um, says here that Jeepers Creepers 3 started production on May 1st. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, oh, well, at... uh, wait, May 1st of this year? Uh, oh, wait, I'm a... sorry, I'm sorry, March 1st. Uh, March 1st of this year, yeah, it started okay. filming. They got Gina Phillips, they got Ray Wise, and Adrian Barbeau. Oh, we got Ray Wise back? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, like, I, I'm... I'm kind of excited, but I'm also hesitant because, you know, I, I hope they bring it back to kind of the old school. Yeah. Well, lower budget. See, that's the problem with the sequel is that they doubled the budget. And sometimes when you have so much money um, in a horror film, you're focused on the action and the gore. And you're not really focused on the atmosphere. And um, kind of it kind of takes away the fear factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another uh, detail that was really good about the first movie was something that was probably inexpensive and really... Uh, difficult undertaking was the scene with the cop escort when he jumps on top of the cop car and like cuts the guy's head off and throws it to the other car. Yeah. Uh, like that was done. They they did some close ups, but if you like, when you watch the scene, the focus is on the front car and you can just see in the background of the shot and it's blurry. Like you can't really see what's going on, but you can see him killing the officers. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, that's such a brilliant way to do it. We're just to show it as if it's, you know, happening in such a way that you're not really focused on it. You know, it's not a ton of gore. I, I really like that detail. Yeah, it's very few movies are able to have a big budget and still be scary. It seems like the restrictions on a movie are usually what help it. Oh, but we can't afford to shoot that. We can't afford it. So we have to, like, uh, insinuate. You know, we have to kind of give a idea of what's going on. Mm. And that's uh, an element that uh, yeah, a lot of, especially horror film directors, don't get. And um, there's this director, I can't, I'm going to butcher his name, but he is French-Canadian, Denis Villeneuve. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, did arri- he did Arrival most recently. He's doing Blade Runner this year. I love Prisoners. He is Prisoners excellent. I've seen pretty much everything he's done. He's probably the best director out there. And he does, he does this kind of the same thing, where he presents violence in this way that you don't really get to, you don't really see it. There's not a lot of gore or blood in his movies. It's very much presented in a way, even in his high budget movies, it's presented as um, a, a part of everyday life. It's not focused on slow motion, blood and guts. It's very much just quick and brutal. It's like the difference between John like, Woo like and a, Ringo Lamb, if you know your Kung Fu flicks. Ringo Lamb uh, was a very straightforward guy, whereas John Woo would kind of like slow-mo and, and kind of fetishize the violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he very much. Interestingly enough, because I, you know, I love John Woo stuff. He got he gets a lot of inspiration in his action scenes from musicals. He kind of his action scenes are basically like his versions of producing a musical. Yeah, and a little bit of pack and so ball. Like the way, <laughs> yeah, like the way that uh, people jump when they get shot or hurt is very much kind of like how you would leap in a in a performance or something. Oh yeah. Yeah, so on the two, um, there is a really awkward moment in the, la- uh, the last five minutes of part one. It's, um, do you remember in the police station when um, Justin Long is grabbing his sister, and for some reason the camera just sits there while they're like, <laughs> like they're talking, and I can't tell what they're saying, and Justin Long is like pointing at her and being quiet, and I don't know what the hell is going on, and the camera just sits there way too long until Jeepers Creepers busts through the window. 
Yeah, I, I suppose they were trying to go for uh, an antici- building anticipation, but it just kind of failed. Yeah, I just kept going, are you guys going to call a cut? Because this is awkward <laughs> for everybody. Yeah. Uh, second one, yeah, like we're saying, it, it has some good action sequences. The the gore is cranked up. The part where his head is taken off, and then he kind of has this weird, like, do you remember when he puts on a new head on, and, like, these little spider arms kind of separate and grab on, and then his face molds into the creeper? Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't get that. That was weird. I didn't, I didn't understand exactly what that was. But it was an interesting idea, but a lot of it seems to be interesting ideas without fully thinking them out. And that's kind of hurts the mythology. Sometimes, it's like with Michael Myers. The more you tell about Michael Myers, the less scary he is. That's why I did not like Rob Zombie's version of it. I did like the first half of the movie when it was just about the the person, Michael Myers. But then when it tried to make it into a classic horror movie, it just fails so horribly. Yeah. And that's kind of like with this creature. The more you try to explain, the more restricted you are in explaining what's going on, ironically enough. Yeah, I think the only villain that so you, like the that more they, you know, the more interesting it is, is Freddy Krueger. Uh, like, even that, though, can get pretty cheesy. You remember the Dream Warriors? That was just the third movie. Yeah. You know, like, he was a bastard of a hundred insane <laughs> asylum inmates. Like, it, it got pretty stupid, too, when they tried to explain it. But I, I do sort of enjoy those creepy flashbacks, though. Yeah, uh, the one in uh, Part 6 with uh, uh, Alice Cooper as his dad, I think? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't really remember that one very well. Because like, I only watched, really, the first four. Oh, okay. Kind of like the ones I like. Yeah. Actually, no, not the fourth one. That was that was probably the worst one. You you said yeah. I know, I like, oddly enough, that's the most successful one. But I think it's because of part three. You just you you said something last year about you wanting to discuss all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and I'm totally game for that. If you ever want to do that, I would love to do that. I have all of the movies. Nice, including Freddy including Freddy versus Jason and New Nightmare. Yeah, New Nightmare is amazing. Um, we're kind of off topic here. Sorry, everybody. Um, I guess that's about it for us here. Is there anything else you want to say about either of these movies? I would highly recommend Jeepers Creepers, and I would probably stay away from Blood Beach. <laughs> Figuratively and <laughs> literally. Uh, um, all right, so everybody, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. You'll find all the episodes of Video Night Trans Transformers, <laughs> Trash Cinema, and Back in Tunes. And until next time, uh, stay trashy, everybody.
the depths of space comes the strongest man on earth in the super adventure odyssey. Hercules. The incredible Lou Ferrigno is Hercules. In a battle with unearthly creatures, Hercules, the superhuman hero with the strength of an army. Hercules facing love and the bewitching forces of evil. Hercules, the all-new adventure. Hercules, a mythic flight of the imagination. Welcome to season three of Trash Cinema. If you've missed the first two seasons, it's kind of been a, a mixed bag. Uh, we're still trying to find our voice on this show, and I think this year, uh, my first guest of season three has kind of got down what the, the theme of the show should be. My uh, guest this week is Kent Hill. How's it going, Kent? Good, Michael. How are you, mate? All right. If you know Kent, um, it might be because he was a guest on Video Night last summer for a couple episodes. You almost might know him for the books that he writes and edits. Uh, do you want to throw out? Do you have anything new you uh, have coming out? Um, well, we, we, there's there's a few uh, through my um, publishing company KHP. We have a few. Uh, we actually have a uh, quartet, I guess, if you will, coming out uh, mid year. Uh, we have. Um, Goodness, we've got another addition to the Cinema of Awesomeness series, which has pre, pre, sorry, previously included uh, Weed Eaters, Black Tar, um, a book that's very much inspired by uh, a film that we're going to talk about today, Hercules with a Shotgun, which is very much inspired by the, um, the Luigi Cozzi uh, Hercules films. Yeah, and that's actually the topic of this episode. We're going to be discussing Star Crash and Hercules, both Luigi Cozy films, which I think are highly underrated. And it's it's sad that he's only done a handful of films. Like I kind of wish he would make some more. Yeah, um, I mean, he was um, just. I mean, uh, if you ever, if you you know, for the listeners out there, there's a great disc. Um, I, I can't. It's is it Shout Factory? I can't remember who put it out. Uh, Roger Corman Classics, I think. Yeah, um, and I and, believe Shot yeah. has the rights to the Hercules as well now. Yeah, and they put out a great uh, disc, which was helped, which was co-produced by a guy named Steve Romano, who is like the world's foremost authority on Star Crash, and he um, he has such an, not only an affection for Star Crash, but for Luigi Cozzi himself, and he said, "Man, he is just like the biggest nerd." like ever got to make movies um because he would like 
you know, reference, try to reference like literally every film that he loved while making films. Um, the most famous sort of one of the more famous references is the, um, the beach, the seaside scene that we see in, um, uh, star crash is actually the same coastline, which they filmed, uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, Yeah. So the dude absolutely loves his movies and loves to try and, you know, squeeze as much of that love into the movies that he made. And, yeah, it's a shame that Luigi uh, didn't keep going. But, you know, I mean, that's, you know, what what he left us is really cool. So we get to constantly enjoy what he left us anyway. So Yeah. In a weird coincidental uh, point here, Stephen Romano did the cover for Trash Cinema. The artwork that you see that was, that was with the podcast, it started 10 years ago as a blog. And, uh, yeah. He, yeah, he did the artwork for, uh, that and it's the 10th, 10th anniversary. Actually, almost literally as we're recording this, I started that 10 years ago. Really cool. Yeah. Cause his, um, his insights, he has two commentary tracks on the disc for those that haven't, uh, watched it and listened to it. One is a really good sort of, one's not scene specific. One's very much a sort of, um, overview of Star Crash's place in you know the the burgeoning sort of sci-fi 70s cinema the star wars effect and all that sort of thing and then the second commentary is very very scene specific and to hear it from him and this guy knows this movie inside out um and he yeah right down to how lines are delivered and you know the costumes and the sets and the yeah he's yeah it's really if you really want to know a lot more than we're possibly going to cover in in this short time then definitely check those out and listen to steve's uh both of his commentary tracks and all the the other extraneous material that he put together as co-producer of that uh of that package star crash is a funny film because for a while i think people thought it was public domain and I kept seeing like cheapo right. copies of it available, and you see it like people would do their own version of Mystery Science Theater. It was on the horror host kind of shows, and then all of a sudden yeah. someone says, "What are you guys doing? Roger Corman owns the rights to this." I'm like, "Hit the brakes!" <laughs> right? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it is one of those movies. Like I remember very fondly, I was saying to my wife the other day, the video store that that was around when I was a kid. They had this great section which was basically sci-fi and fantasy movies and all that but it was called the um adventure it was called the adventure section that was the name of the section in the video store and it had sci-fi fantasy like you know from everything from sword and sorcery to um you know star wars and all that sort of stuff and um a lot of those movies like star crash and all of the italian um you know warriors of the wastelands and um Oh, just all these great like ripoffs of Mad Max, and you know, <laughs> which came in the wake of such films. Um, yeah, they were all sort of on the bottom shelf, and you know, they were very attractive because the covers were like really, you know, uh, rambunctious, you might say. <laughs> and and um, the Star Crash cover, the one that was on the VHS tape over here, is very similar to the Italian poster which has two characters, neither of which look like Marjo Gortner or, um, <laughs> or David Hasselhoff or um, uh, Caroline Monroe. Um, and there's all sorts of uh, spacecrafts. There's one that's sort of very vaguely reminiscent of an actual, you know, one of the, the, the Star Wars spacecrafts 
I heard um, on Steve's commentary that these these this art is actually wrong because the photograph they sent to the artist who did the poster, the ship is actually upside down. <laughs> so he so he painted it upside down or something like that. So yeah, so this cover really stood out because having of course seen Star Wars, go wow, this looks a lot like Star Wars. This will be fun. And, um, yeah, totally got it out and yeah, had my mind blown just as much as Star Wars because, you know, when you're that age, um, you know, uh, when you're not quite five years old and everything's like, um, <laughs> it's, there's nothing bad, <laughs> you know, it's not like when you get older and you get the movies, you know, geez, that was crap. But, you know, but back, everything was golden and, and this movie was just golden, you know? You're not, you're not jaded yet. You're not cynical about films. It's when you're a kid, your world is open. You're, everything is new to you, and, and you don't really judge. I wonder what it's like for kids now, if they were to view the yeah, first Star well, Wars and then the the prequels and whatever. They would would they judge the special effects, or they're like, well, it's just progression. You know, I get it. Well, it's like that. It's just like this dude. Um, you watch. There's a documentary called. You've probably seen it. It's called The People versus George Lucas, and they there's one guy who says it quite i think which is pretty much um on like hitting the the hammer on the nail where he says that you know his kids have seen star wars but to them it's all star wars right they've seen the prequels they've seen the 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 originals they'll see the new ones uh but to them there's no you know it's all star wars to them because they don't have the generational thing going like they didn't see the originals when they came out and then were disappointed possibly by when the prequels came and now sort of have like this new um you know another you know you know the third coming now which we've got with uh force awakens and rogue one and and at the end of the year the last jedi but um so yeah so we don't we we have this we have this unfortunate curse of time in between drinks so (laughs) you know it's uh, it's like wow, that tasted so great the first time, and then, you know, enough time goes by, and you know, you get a new liver, and you're allowed to drink again, and um, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's um, yeah, but Star Crash is sort of falls into that category, and like you said at the top of the show, um, when you're talking about what are perceived as bad movies, because they're not really bad. No one sets out to make a bad movie. Right, no one sets out to make something crappy or unintentionally funny, like that time you know when we had that great discussion about the seasonal films. Now, oh, right, right. to me, they're, they're to, to me they're the great unintentionally funny movies, and it's not be and they they didn't set the, they they certainly weren't sitting there to they didn't wouldn't make them like that, you know. When I eventually got to interview um, Lauren Abbott and when I joined um, podcasting them softly, um, he said a lot of his acting that over the top acting that you see in those films and also in Italian films, as I've found out is basically what they're asked for because in, in Asian theater and in Greek theater, it is very over the top. They like big expressions, big performances, make it big. You know, when Lauren Avenue was doing Lauren, make it bigger, make it bigger. (laughs) You know, so he he couldn't just like say, no, he couldn't just say, pull his hair and go, no, no, oh, that's terrible. He had to go, no! You know? And, and, like, everything has to be over the top, you know? Like, like, um, like Joe Spinell, when he comes out, like, you know, you can he really works that cape almost. You can imagine 
like Luigi, like, yes, swallow the cape, swallow the cape. And he's like, yes, you know, I will unlaunch my doom machine upon, you know, and, and, you know, even though he, Joe is dubbed um, uh, he, in the he, film. He gets it right. I, know, think most, I mean, Marjo, nearly everyone's Yeah, him and Marjo Gortner, I think. But, right. um, yeah, and, you know, you've got this great headliner, um, and and there's a great point of contention like how Marjo Gortner got top billing, but um, yeah, but you've got this really the big end because I mean he's come from he's been a, you know a child evangelist and all that sort of thing prior, so he knows how to stir up the audience. Have you ever seen a movie called When Are You Coming Back, Red Rider, with him as a lead? Yeah, so that movie, he's kind of like really, really wrapped up, and he's the lead in that. I think he did that right after Star Crash. Super intense. Yeah. And it's kind of weird that his career dried up almost immediately after those two movies. Yeah, and then he was sort of relegated to, like, he was the bad guy in uh, one of the American Ninja movies. I think it was, was it two? I think it was two or three. The Confrontation, yeah, I think three, it was three. Three? Three, yeah. But, um, yeah, and yeah, he was kind of relegated to – I mean, he did do some other lead parts, but he didn't really sort of um, explode. Like, I don't know, like he didn't he didn't endure, you know. But it was kind of cool. Like, I was talking to someone the other day, and, like, his last performance – his last credited performance, anyway, was uh, – playing a tent preacher in um, Walter Hill's Wild Bill, you know, uh, which is kind of like going full circle because that's kind of where the guy started. And yeah. it was, you know, I mean, who better, who better to get to play, uh, uh, you know, one of those uh, tent evangelists than, um, you know, the the, <laughs> the man himself. But, um, yeah, Marjo's great. I mean, and you can see, even though he's dubbed as well, um, you can see he's got this... Uh, you know, he's got this really, like, kinetic sort of energy, like, you know, um, and all of his responses, like, have a little bit of something to it, you know, it's very operatic, it's like, you know, before you can ask it, it shall be done, you know, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, yeah, it's just, it's just such a great, you know, great, I mean, automatically, like, I watched Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 yesterday, right, and that colour palette, you know, I remember sort of coming out thinking, wow, that's like, that color palette, you know, it's very, very, you know, very vibrant. Lots of rain, you know, it's very rainbowy, lots of golds and oranges and red, you know, it's it's a great phantasmagoria of, of colors. Um, you know, and it made me think back to, like, the likes of Star Crash, which is an incredibly vibrant film, like the... The, the galaxy in, in Luigi's films isn't just, like, white stars. There's, like, orange stars and red stars and blue stars and, <laughs> you know, it's, it it's a really, a like... It's, it's, yeah, it it's a really discotheque so universe. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really, like... It's so colourful and bright. And, um, and, of course, that goes on because um, Armando Valcado did the uh, effects would follow him um, into the Hercules movies, which we'll get into. But, um, yeah, but what an incredible film, it you know, and, and is what it is, you got to remember that, uh, yeah, and it is because we're literally talking about a film that was put into production or, or literally like um, put into, well, not maybe not into production, but put into play literally only months after the original Star Wars comes out. Um, 
and you know it was just uh, you know the the Italian producers um, uh, Nannarini and his French co-producer uh, Washburger Wash Washburger Washburger I think. <laughs> Um, yeah, they literally saw like, you know, wow, this is great. Look at the crazy, because Luigi had already been to them with a, a script, a science fiction screenplay. And they said, well, you know, yeah. Oh, you like science fiction? Yeah. We want to do this. Look at this Star Wars movie. But at the time, Luigi could not get, um, Star Wars had not yet come out in Europe, I think at the time. So all he had to go on when he was writing the script was the novelization of the, of Star Wars. So he literally reads that a couple of times and then sets to work. And the only notes I think he had from, I can't remember, it was Washburger, was they wanted dinosaurs and cavemen um, in the film as well, as the spaceships and the robots and all that sort of stuff. So um, that was that was some early notes. <laughs> that sounds like the outline to, um, what's that one with Reb Brown? Uh, your Hunter from the Future? It's, oh, yeah, what a great movie. We'll have to do that one eventually on this uh show because that's like you know that's got to be seen to be believed um <laughs> exactly. we did it last season it's a great movie but um yes so um when all was said and all the money was paid um you know the highest earner in the film i think was uh uh christopher Plummer, who was paid a couple of million dollars for like three days work or something or two days you know <laughs> that's because literally that, I, I heard that he said he didn't uh, care what the movie was as long as he could go to rome yeah, true. He was like, it was a bit like, um, I, I don't know if it's a joke or it's true or not. Maybe it's half joking when um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson on the on the Deep Blue Sea commentary when Rennie Holland said, you know, oh yeah, come down to uh, come down to the Gulf of Mexico where we're filming this movie. And he said, well, can I golf there? And he says, sure. And he goes, well, I'll come down. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so Christopher Plummer comes in and, and they literally filmed all this stuff, I think, like in two days or a day or something or a day and a bit, you know, because literally he only turns up and sits down and, you know, basically says, you know, find my only son. Christopher Plummer got paid a lot of money. Um, who else were we go? We got here. We got uh, David Hasselhoff. Um, another David Hasselhoff. That's right. David the Hoff. Even yesterday, he was in... I don't know. Oh, I shouldn't say it. It's a spoiler, shouldn't I? What? What? I shouldn't say it. No, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, okay. No, okay. I won't talk about it. Um, yes. David Hasselhoff. Um, he wears eyeliner. Almost as pretty as, um, as Carolyn Monroe. Yeah. More, yeah, more makeup than Carolyn Monroe, I think. Um, the interesting story that you find out when you listen to Steve's thing is that he actually had dysentery or he was very sick or something. Um, prior, so that's why he turns up in the gold helmet in the film initially. Ah. Uh, so because they had to use uh, a double uh, while he was recovering because he came to Italy and, and wasn't feeling well, uh, had the squirts, and so they had to, <laughs> and so they had to, uh, they had to put a you know put the mask on this other guy to like film something while he was recovering and then of course the first time we see he takes the helmet off and like oh it's david hasselhoff isn't he famous in germany um <laughs> which at the time this movie came out he was nobody i think he was just a soap opera actor yeah. but of course in retrospect yeah, you're like, like holy crap 
Yeah, and it's literally like I, I think my, when my wife I showed my wife the first time because she had not seen it. She goes, "Holy shit, that's David Hasselhoff!" And I went, "Yeah," <laughs> and she goes, "Wow, he's got a lot of makeup on." And wow, look at that afro! And <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, and totally like yeah, he was. Um, I, I think he just came off. Uh, I don't know what it was General Hospital or one of those shows. Um, but yeah, David Hasselhoff, and he turns up, and you know, and he's. Um, He's got to be like Christopher Blommer's son because he's just too regal to be anyone else. And um, totally, he just, yeah, he shows up and and it's like, wow. All of a sudden the movie takes a different turn. Now we're in a different territory. But um, it was it was odd. One of the things that was brought up about Star Crash 2 is it was one of the only rip-offs at the time to actually use the idea or, 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 or an idea of the lightsaber, which there was a lot of Star Wars-like films, just like there was a lot of, you know, Road Warrior-like yeah. films. But that was one of the only ones where you actually see Acton, like Acton, um, Marjo Gortner, has a lightsaber, which, which the Hoff does get to use, so we can actually say in movie history that David Hasselhoff fought with a lightsaber at some <laughs> point. Um which, which is a kind of cool thing. Life is kind of cool sometimes. Um, and he gets to fight the um, the golems. The, which are awesome. Uh, I love stop-motion animation. I don't care if people say, yeah. say it looks cheap. I think there's something like offbeat about it, something that's unsettling in horror and just fun and goofy in, in fantasy films. Yeah, and I mean, they're called golems because um, Luigi, again, a big nerd, loved Lord of the Rings, so he called them the golems after Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Um, and again, this is, this is the work of a really young, talented guy at the time, Armando Valcado, who really, um, taught himself a lot of the techniques that we watch in that movie. Um, and, uh, Steve Romano says that he corresponded with Ray Harryhausen and wrote him letters and got tips from Harryhausen how to do all this stuff. So he was literally like this, this kind of guy who came out of nowhere and had been teaching himself special effects all these special effects of, of the period. And the dude, when all was said and done, I think it was rumored to have a lead. He had less than or, or just around $30,000 to produce the effects that we see in Star Crash. That's shocking uh, because I think it's the first movie to ever use CGI. I don't think there was one before that used any sort of computer-generated effects, but you do see, like, for a brief moment, like, a little bit of CGI. Yeah, yeah, like, um, so, yeah, there was a lot that, I mean, they were squeezing, like, because the above-the-line talent um, and the producers were taking, you know, the, you know, taking their cut as well, the dude had literally, like, next to no money to produce all this stuff. And so we're literally seeing, there's no motion control. We're literally seeing, like, you know, cameras just being rolled past these models sitting in this very elegant star field um, or being moved on wires, which are cleverly sort of, you know, photographed so you don't see them. But they were so, I heard they were so, um, <laughs> so hard up as far as when they used the model kits to construct the spaceships that they literally also used the, you know, the little plastic bits that hold the pieces. Mm-hmm together you know like the little they're around the outside like it holds the pieces and you literally break the pieces out well they were actually using the the lining as well um to make the to to add to the models because they were literally like yeah don't throw anything away we can use everything um (laughs) it was like you know 
It was like, you know, when you go to like, uh, you know, uh, when you're starving and you catch a fish, like, you know, there's no, you know, we don't throw it away, the eyes, the guts, you know, scrapey, scrapey. We use everything here. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's in a film. But, but what you get when you come away from Luigi's movies um, is this tremendous sense of joy and fun. Yeah, they're optimistic. Uh, uh, yeah, which is I think it, weird that not... people treat them so cynically because it's like it's like they're meant to be family films. They're supposed to be enjoyed yeah. by anybody, and there's so much positivity in each of these films. It's hard to hate them. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean the dude loved movies so much that you can see it. You can see it in the films. You can feel it in the films, uh, and that's why even though yeah, okay, they're they're chintzy and they're you know they're lo- you know. They're, low budget but man there's so much fun going you can you know even though um it's it's low budget filmmaking there was probably a lot of pressure on him and stuff like everyone was you can see that everyone must have enjoyed themselves at some point doing some of that stuff and i mean luigi would go on um i know it's a little bit off topic but he would go on to do another film with lou ferrigno it's called sinbad of the seven seas which is trippy it because is... i still have no idea what that movie's about i watched it twice in a row and I'm like no i got nothing what's going on <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> it is it is hilarious i mean still the bit where he talks the snake into letting him use him as a rope to climb out of the prison <laughs> um is one of the great scenes in cinema history it's like I know you guys have got a bad rabbit. Come here. I'm not going to hurt you. And, and then he grabs the snakes and they're like, and you can see a really bad puppeteer is like <laughs> trying to get, get a bit of life out of this rubber snake, which obviously isn't working too much, but well, he grabs all the air. Yeah. Thank you. Movie, jungle. That movie was taken away from him and directed by somebody else. Uh, the guy who did escape from the Bronx. What the hell's his name? Enzo. Um, oh yeah. Cast. Castellari? Something like that. Yeah, Castellari? Yeah, Castellari? But, but when he was done with yeah. it, it made no sense, so they gave it back to him, and he's like, well, what am I supposed to do with this mess? You should let me film the movie in the first place instead of taking my script and firing me. I don't I, I don't get that, why they did that. Yeah, it's weird. But, um, yeah, but anyway, getting back to Star Crash, we've got a, we've got a, a really, really cool uh film here which has like i said because luigi's such a, a film nut we've got we've got a little bit of sam peckinpah in there we've got the slow motion kills we've got john barry doing the score yeah man the guy who did the james bond uh out of africa and then you read his star crash and you're like <laughs> wow wow you know, and it's and it's there's a few bars. Like if you listen to it, there's a few bars that he would go on. I reckon to to uh, to rehash in the black hole um, soundtrack. You got to listen to it very carefully. But there's a few bars in there that he goes on uh, when he did the black hole that he totally pilfered from himself. Um, so yeah, but um, yeah, it's just incredible film. It's got a sequel. Do you know about the sequel? Yeah, Escape from Galaxy Three, which is <laughs> so boring. Yeah, yeah. Not even the not even the native dancing um, <laughs> musical dancing number in the middle can save that movie, which is a shame um, that they didn't sort of invest and come back and do a get everyone back and you know have Acton come back to life somehow and you know and do it all again. Yeah, this movie was but, a hit. It's it's weird that AIP saw the final print and said no, we're not going to distribute this, and then it got picked up by Roger Corman. 
and then he didn't sequelize so, it. It's weird. He didn't sequelize a lot of his movies in, at first. You think there would have been a Piranha, like, 2, 3, 4, 5, or Rock and Roll High School, you know, the sequels of that, Humanoids from the Deep. He just seemed to be seemed to be yeah. too interested in sequels until, uh, like, the early 90s. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's strange because I mean now, I mean now it's like commonplace. We're so used to we're so used to like our generation is so used to sequels. We you know we like oh you know if it was successful there's gonna be another one, and then if that's successful there's gonna be another one. But um, you know back in the day like you'd get a really good movie and like if there was a sequel it'd be a surprise. I was like wow okay they're gonna make another one that's 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 cool. Like it's you know you're you're excited but it's unexpected because there weren't as many sequels, you know? No, but then the eighties changed all of that. And that brings us to our next movie. Uh, mm. After doing alien contamination, I think he understood that he needs to stick to that fantasy genre because I don't know if you've seen alien contamination, but it's brutally boring and it just doesn't seem like his kind of movie. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not as much fun as the others. It's kind of, it's, I think it's Luigi trying to do, just you know, trying to do the more commercial product, and he's—I don't think there's a lot of—I don't think there's a lot of his heart in that movie, you know. Whereas with Star Crash and Hercules, you can see like a real, like I said before, like a real joy, a rambunctiousness that's just like, wow, yeah, this is fun. This is, you know, the lights, the action, oh, it's fantastic. You know, he's having a great time. But with Alien Contamination, you got a feeling like he might have had some sort of pressure from some corners to like make a. You know, like, oh, you need to make it like they do. You know, like, it's, it's you know, it's dark and terse and boring and, yeah. yeah. Well, let's say this about the Italian market. They let their directors do any genre they wanted to, as long as yeah. it was something that was kind of hot at that time. So people who were just doing yeah. westerns were doing crime, you know, giallo films, and then they would go into the Road Warrior, Rambo, you know, fantasy films. So at least in that market, they let them do whatever they wanted. Yeah, totally. Totally, but um, yeah, the, the Lou Ferrigno Hercules movies, and I was quite surprised uh, when I was writing uh, Hercules with a shotgun, which is directly based and inspired on those movies. Uh, even the cover, I had the cover artist uh, Zach Smith uh, do an unashamed. I said, "You've got to make him look like the Lou Ferrigno uh, Hercules," <laughs> uh, you know, and he's there holding a shotgun. Uh, and he said, oh, I've not seen it. I said, D he played Hercules? And I'm like, oh, oh, I just wanted to slap him on both sides of the head. Like, oh, what, what are you talking about? You know, you're not a child Hercules. of the 80s? It was on TV all the time. You know, come on. Like, let us get serious. If you're going to talk to me, talk seriously. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I said, mate, come on. He played Hercules. You, you haven't seen Lou Frigno as Hercules? Here's the videotape. Oh, hang on! You don't know what a video tape. Oh uh, no, here's here's a, here's a DVD. Uh, I think I actually gave him the video tape first. I said, oh, "Here's a video," and he looked at it like, "Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, you're young. You don't know what this is." Uh, here, here's a DVD. You know what this is, don't you? He said, "Yeah, totally." I said, "Go away and watch this, and then come back, and we'll have a chat." And um, so yeah, he come and goes, "Oh, wow, that was really cool." He said, "I didn't know you played Hercules," and so and they're and they're funny and dopey. And I was like, "Yeah, that's, that's great fun, isn't it?" I said, see, you learn something new every day. Um, yeah, but Lou Ferrigno is Hercules. And um, we should point out that both of these guys who met as bodybuilders, Lou and Big Arnold, uh, were both dubbed very badly in their initial 
sort of uh, years in movies. Arnold in um, Hercules comes to New York. Um, <laughs> so bad. So bad, <laughs> yeah, I know. And then, uh, and then uh, Lou um, in, uh, in, in Hercules. But it's a great thing. I think my favourite thing, and I actually homaged it. No, I ripped it off. Um, where he knocks the bear into outer space. Well, in my <laughs> In, in, in my story, one of the, the chapters opens with the bear still floating around, frozen in space. Uh, <laughs> it's still orbiting the Earth, um, you know. And, uh, yeah. and of course, people who, who love those movies read that and go, oh, that's great, that's from, you know, the Luigi uh, Hercules movies. But, uh, yeah, he knocks that bear into orbit. And why not? Um, because he killed his father. He tried to do a, uh, a Leonardo DiCaprio on him, uh, a remnant. Um, and, yeah, and then you've got some, uh, yeah, you've got everything. You've got the, you've got the, the gods, uh, so bright and luminous. Um, not have they been seen so bright and luminous since uh, the remake of Clash of the Titans. Um, you know, release the Kraken. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but um, it's an incredible. Again, Visually, so much fun, so spectacular for the budget that they probably had. Um, well, you've got I this think, beautiful. I think Canon Pictures gave them a little bit more money to do the special effects this time yeah. around um, than Star yeah. Crash. Yeah, and you gotta love, you gotta love. Like one of my favorite scenes is like, you know, how are we gonna get there, Hercules? We've got to travel miles, and he does like a hammer throw, like ties the the chariot to the rock, and like just his sheer strength of wielding this rock. <laughs> and it's going to pull them exactly where they need to go um, at breakneck speed. Um, we've got a great cast. You know, you've got Sybil Danning. Um, you know, who was I believe it was once said. You know, if that cost, if that uh, costume had been any lower, it would have been dangerous. <laughs> um, you know, you've got uh, William Berger uh, who played Banjo in Sabata. Oh right, you know, right. I knew I knew that. As, as Keith. Yeah, as King Minos, you know, Minos, he's a bit of a Pinos. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and you've got uh, Brad Harris plays the king in there too. Brad Harris would be with um, with Lou in, um, oh, what was it, Seven Magnificent Gladiators? Yeah, they shot both uh, these back to back from what I was reading. Yeah. Yeah, he was in another Hercules movie too. I think at some point, and he was also in the show. He was on. Um, he was on the Hulk. He was a guest on one of the the Hulk uh, TV series as well. But um, yeah, just tremendous. Look again, uh, if you watch the two back to back, the same joy and the same um, playfulness and all that is is apparent in both films. And you can see Luigi's having just a heck of a time making this movies and armando comes back with his giant metallic you know you've got king minos looks at the tiny little models he goes they're a bit small aren't they you know and uh, <laughs> and she goes well don't worry when they you know when they turn up they'll be they'll be the right size don't worry minos and he's like oh well i trust you daedalus what a terrific headdress you're wearing where did you get that costume are you wearing a card piece um you're a woman aren't you uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah but just tremendous like you know uh, you know and the, the you know the, it's it's got a you can see that, that Luigi loves 
um, all of those movies like Jason and the Argonauts because it's got a very Jason and the Argonauts vibe where the gods are like literally playing puppet master, if you will, to these characters and moving them around the board to try and, you know, um, to further their, you know, their causes or whatever. Um, except for Minos, who works, uh, he doesn't believe in the gods, so he's exempt from all that. And he's got this, um, like any good baddie, he's got like an island uh, fortress or <laughs> stronghold, you know. And uh, and it's very, it's it's a beautiful. You can see it's a beautiful model, uh, even though it looks, it's, it is basically a model. It's yeah, not, <laughs> well, back then you didn't have much of an option. You had to go with those models. At least, at least they're fun looking knowing they don't like obviously like, oh that looks like crap they did in five minutes you know there was yeah. time spent on these movies it's not look it's not a project it's very colorful and there's atmosphere and it, it you know it, it does look, you know people go oh it's a model and you know when some people look at those old movies and they say oh geez that's very that's a model and you know and it takes them out of the movie somehow and go well no but look, i mean look at the you know there, there is quite a lot of detail and it's not like they threw it together and and photographed it even though there's a lot of people that will say it looks like that, but it, it doesn't. It's 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 really beautiful, and there's a lot of care put into it. And well, it's also um, a fantasy you know, film. You know, you have to give it yeah. a grain of salt because it's supposed to be kind of hyper reality. Yeah. yeah, it's not. I mean, this is not like um, with a lot of these movies, even with with Star Crash, is like. I mean, Lucas was all about, as he said multiple times about the used universe like everything should feel sort of lived in but when you think about movies like star crash and even like uh luke besson's fifth element and and the valerian which is coming out soon this that isn't really sort of science fiction that's more science fantasy and star crash is really science fantasy because you've got to remember science fiction um is kind of some science fiction is rooted in what's possible and is an extension of what could be possible. Whereas science fantasy is, is, is fantasy. It's fantastical. It's, you know, um, you know, those ships, uh, you know, the ship that looks like a giant claw in star crash, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a giant, you know, I mean, that's why would you build a ship <laughs> like that? Like wh which end is the front? Um, you know, um, you know, so it's and the same with the Hercules films. It's 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 really a fan, it's a fantasy film. There's nothing in there, you know, that you know, except for the trees. You know, obviously they're not fantastical trees. They're trees, they're trees that we know and love. Um, but you know, the rest of it is pure, like just wow. Like it doesn't have to have any plausible. It, it looks cool. You know, we're going back to a time where stuff could they put stuff in movies that just looked cool, right? Yeah. You know. Whereas we, we live in an age where, like, you know, even the superhero movies, well, not all of them, but some of them, it's like, oh, you know, we, we're trying to ground this in reality. Like, we're trying to ground, ground Batman in reality. Like, if he really had to build the Batmobile, he would have to build it like this. Um, why couldn't it just be a really cool car? Who gives a shit how he built it? It just looks really awesome. Right. I you got know? that and in that was... uh, Last Starfighter. Someone was watching and like, well, if he spun around like that with all those lasers shooting around, his ship would tear apart. He would be puking. He'd twist his neck. You know, it's like, shut up. Yeah, it's just it's cool. I mean, like you know, what happened to like it just looks cool. Like you know, you know, along the way we, we you know, the, you you talk you, when we were speaking at the beginning, like you, you know, we we came when you come up and watching these movies. There's no cynicism. I think cynicism is also creeping into 
the filmmaking process itself because they, it has to be today like oh it's got to be it's got to be plausible somehow it's you know he built it and you know whatever but why not just you know back in those days like and, and you can see it in luigi's films like it just looks cool like wow we, you know how would he have built that who cares it looks awesome yeah you know? I, think, uh, I think what's missing and why i enjoy italian movies so much italian ripoff movies most of the time but they knew that they had a very certain level that they were automatically going to make in sales. So they're like, just have these ingredients, go have some fun. Now it seems like everybody's sweating it over every single detail, every single penny, that it's not enjoyable. Yeah, you know, and it's and everything's got to be, everything's got to have some sort of reason or plausibility. And, you know, and, and yeah, okay, um, for some people that works, some people need that. You know, just like you said with with Starfighter, said, well, you, would it would it have helped if he puked on the windscreen for you? Would that make that a better movie for you? <laughs> if you know, yes, okay, that type of motion would cause you to throw up, sure. But would it have been a better film if he'd have thrown up in his helmet and then take it off and like then he's got to scoop it out like a melon? Oh, you know, that'd be the worst movie ever. <laughs> You know, it's just like, and, and Greg sent behind him. He goes, "That's the spirit scoop that you don't throw it away." <laughs> Yeah, it's not pressuring me. Yeah, we got a hot meal right here. Uh, <laughs> right, so um, yeah, so I mean, again, it's it's um, the 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 same sort of um, these films are really a word that comes to mind when I watch it, is bombastic. They're bombastic films. They're like, whoa, everything's like big. Make it bigger, like you know when Hercules like sees his father down no you know it's you know and he hits the bear into outer space and then you know and then he's stalwart you know he burns his house down when his mother's dead now too it's like hercules what are you gonna do i have no hope i'm just gonna wander the, i'm just gonna wander the earth i heard that the king is having a uh, a championship and i'm gonna go there and kick some ass you know and uh you know and and so he does and and he meets, uh, you know, the the hot prince. And, oh, oh! If I clean the stables, you got to take off your veil. And uh, <laughs> so it's, um, you know, everything's everything, you know, totally. It's and it's wonderful. And like Hercules is the what you love about those movies is the hero is the only guy that can do it. You know, Hercules, you're the only one. You know, you hear them say it like a thousand times. And you watched the sequel as well, didn't you? you watch oh, two? definitely. And the sequel's just as enjoyable. Yeah, and like if you hear that that line, it just it could be a drinking game. Hercules, you're the only one that can do this. Drink. Um, <laughs> I can't finish. I gotta go to bed. Yeah, and he goes like Hercules, you're the only one that can remove the the, the thing from the thing, the the amulet from the the fire. You're the only one that can remove this from the the sacred thing. You're the only one who can beat the fire demon. You're the only one who can, um, you know, punch that that grass looking creature that attacked you. Um, so yeah. And it's, and they're totally like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a style of filmmaking and a tone of filmmaking that really is foreign to a lot of people in this age of, of cookie cutter films. Yeah. Well, it's funny. If you look at, I'm fascinated by Canon pictures. If you look at their filmography, their films tend to fall into two classes around this time period, for like the, the the years that they had a lot of money. Um, 
usually like cynical action violent films and then more of the pop kid friendly films you know the master of the universe invader from mars superman 4 and these two hercules movies i kind of wish that they had made more of these even though they are more expensive than the like the vigilante action films why people know who canon pictures are now is because those movies are packaged and sold uh to like the smaller networks and they aired over and over and over sure yeah and but uh go ahead yeah go on Oh no! Just saying, it's I. I wish that Canon Pictures had done more of those. It's funny that Hercules almost ended up being like a grindhouse kind of. What is the uh, one thing of Deathstalker, like that kind of movie? Because Canon Pictures originally wanted yeah. a hard R. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's a fine line that you know when you when you that that whole that whole uh, what's a good word catalog of of those kinds of films those uh, sword and sorcery fantasies or science fiction fantasies they all uh fell into this you know because because of the way they were uh because of what they were really and when i spoke with jim winorski about Deathstalker too he said and he said it a lot he said it in the commentary He's, when they get the script sometimes of these films uh, and they look at the budget that they have, they go, we can't do this for that kind of money. Uh, because the original script uh, for Deathstalker 2 was very much a Conan ripoff, but it was very serious, you know, um, and it was very, uh, how should we say, uh, very formulaic. They wanted something that was as close to Conan as they could get. Something derivative. And he, yeah, and he said, we can't, we, we just can't do, <laughs> you know, it, it's, and it's going to, he said, it's going to be laughable anyway. Why don't we just not take it so seriously? And so, you know, over a couple of drinks, <laughs> uh, you know, a couple of rum and cokes or whatever, uh, he and John Terleski sat down and imagined what it would be like if Bugs Bunny were the Death Stalker, uh, <laughs> and and just made made you know not so much making fun of it, but made you know just lighten it up. Like we're not going to be able to do a Conan movie. You know, Conan was a big studio picture. Uh, we're talking a budget that's maybe a quarter of the size, if that. And we just can't do it and, and come off without looking stupid. So let's not play the serious angle. Let's play it tongue firmly planted in cheek and, you know, and, and have a good time doing it. And you can see that when you watch Death Talkers 2. You can see that when you watch uh, the Hercules movies. You can see that when you watch Star Crash because they know, they know the constraints of what they're doing and they've just got to play it to the hilt. And everyone plays it to the hilt in these movies. You know, everyone is, is sincere and as whatever as possible uh, because, you know, they they're still they still ultimately have to produce uh, a product. And the thing is with most movies is once they're finished, and most filmmakers will say the same, uh, it ceases to be yours. It now belongs to the audience, and the audience will make of this movie exactly what they will. Yeah. Uh, and once they have uh, either embraced it or despised it, that film will now sit forever as what the audience has made of it, and it ceases to be, 
you know, the filmmakers constructed it and we watch how they constructed it. And nowadays with all the extras, we get to see how it was all put together. But how the film lives on after that is purely because of us and how we perceive it and how much we enjoy it or how much we hate it or how much we deify it or whatever. And um, films like Luigi's movies have lived on, you know, and, okay, yeah, they found they probably found an extended life through video um, and are continuing, thank goodness, to come out in Blu-ray and, and DVD. Um, and we, and it's because the people who love them pass them on. Like, you, you know, you tell friends, I tell friends, oh, you haven't seen, you don't know what Star Crash is? You haven't seen Lou Ferrigno as Hercules? You haven't seen Lou Ferrigno as Sinbad? What are you kidding? Uh <laughs> come on, come inside and share our beer and wine um, and we'll watch it together. And that's how these movies, uh, thankfully, are still with us because they are so much fun and they are so entertaining and they are so um, operatic in, 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 in some senses because, you know, Luigi's, you know, uh, an Italian filmmaker and everything is wonderful you know they they when they don't they don't just have meals they have feasts <laughs> and they don't you know every 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 payday is a fortune and every meal is a banquet you know come on it's um it's it's fantastic and uh when you watch these films um you know okay yeah we you laugh because of you know some of it is intentionally hilarious unintentionally hilarious but um and and yeah okay we mock them a little bit too um but we also there's also like we've said earlier there's so much joy you get so much joy out of watching them and when you talk about when you talk about films like this and when you want to do like you say shows on on what are considered bad movies or trash movies or whatever. Um, they're not movies that you just want to sit and trash because that doesn't make for a very interesting show. Like what I said at the beginning, like, oh, yeah, let's talk about this movie. Oh, that was shit. End of show. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'll tell you God, but why is it? Well, I don't want to talk about it. I'm hungry. No, it's um, yeah. it's a non-cynical approach to something that there. it's it's silly fun. It's not to be taken dead serious. It's just something that's good to, like you said, pass around to chat about. Like, can you believe this moment? That's crazy. You know, these movies are filled yeah. with it. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many. You know, there are as equally there are equally as many. Like, you know, we talk about the the we talk about popular films, like films that most people know. And oh, yeah, that's they've got so many quotable lines. These films are exactly the same. These films are exactly the same. There are so many quotable lines from Star Crash and um, and Hercules. You know, like I said, you know, like he gets uh, you know, he gets told like a you know a shit ton of times that he's the only guy that can do it. Hercules. You're the only one that can do it. Um, and like you know, there's so many quotable lines like from Star Crash. Like uh, I love the the gunslinging uh, robot L. Like you know, every time, every time. Yeah, he sounds a bit like Slim Pickens, and he's a bit, you know, every time I go into hyperspace, I get nervous, you know, um, <laughs> right? And um, and let's not forget, like, um, Carolyn Monroe, like, her, her her catchphrase in that movie is, are you crazy? <laughs> Everyone's crazy, you know? I mean, you know, it's just, um, and there's so, there's so much quotable stuff 
in that. You know, it's just that they're not, you know, because they're not what we call, you know, mainstream or people, not a lot of people have seen them. They don't treat them. But among people who love them, you know, like, you know, you sit around with a bunch of people who love Luigi's movies and, like, oh, yeah, I love that scene. And they, and they quote the lines. And, Which is funny, um, in America, also, he was given the name Lewis Coates. Did he get that down there? That's right. Yes, Lewis Coates. Yeah, yeah, they're all they're all listed as Lewis Coates uh, movies here. Um, but oddly enough, I have a I had a videotape version. I think it's of the second Hercules, Hercules Two, or the Adventures of Hercules, um, which does have which does have his credit his credited Luigi Cozzi. It was um, there was a, a video distribution company down here called CIC Taft Video. And they, uh, in in some of those versions, when those films came over from Europe, they still have, like, the Italian, like, even some of the actors uh, had, like, uh, American-sounding names. But when those, when they came through that distribution company down here, all of the Italian credits were still intact, even though the film was dubbed in English. So that was... Um, I think, yeah, I think I remember, I, I vaguely remember watching it after seeing the first one and then watching the second one and thinking, of course, being young, thinking, oh, it was directed by someone else, not knowing Luigi Cozzi was Lewis Coates. Yeah. Um, so, you know, because, like, the second one was, you know, like a lot of those canon movies, like a big part of the of the start of the film is shots from the first film, <laughs> you know, to you know, just in case you missed the first episode, which is easy cheap filler. Yeah, totally, and um, and just like a lot of those fantasy films at the time or around that time, like um, uh, a good example is Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, which is basically uh, it has a crap ton of footage. From just about every other film that was being made at that time, it has footage from Sorceress. It has footage from um, Deathstalker. Deathstalker, yeah, it's got like little scenes, like you know. And obviously, well, we couldn't afford to film this. Oh, let's just use that scene again. You know, even in Deathstalker too, Jim talks about you know. They, oh, here's some Deathstalker footage, you know, <laughs> that they uh, that they put in, you know, to, to to for a bit of filler there, but. Um, so yeah, so automatically, you know, I mean that was the canon way, but you can't you can't hate canon. Canon was no, incredible. Dude. What Con- a fantastic Concord time! Pictures, when Corman would do that, it's it, worse. Yeah. All right, everybody. I think we've hit our hour. So, um, anything else you want to say about the movies before we go? Uh they're fantastic. Look, if you haven't seen Star Crash and you haven't seen Luigi Cozzi's uh, Hercules, yeah, if you haven't seen any of his movies. Um, get out there, get out there and watch them. They're on a lot of them are on DVD now. For those of you who don't know what a videotape is, um, <laughs> uh, or no, but no, no, but seriously, they are um, fantastic movies. And these two, um, Star Crash and Hercules, and also the the, the sequel to uh, Hercules, which is sometimes credited as Hercules Two or the Adventures of Hercules. Check them out, man. They're fantastic. We love them. We've been talking about them for the last. You know, <laughs> we could talk. We could. I'm sure. I'm sure we could talk longer uh, about them. But they are they are fantastic films. They're so much fun. They're not really crappy. They are actually really really well made movies um, with big production. I mean, Star Crash has a huge. If you go through some of the credits on Star Crash, uh, a lot of those guys went on to big things. Um, 
you know, in, on bigger pitches. And, uh, yeah, and it's got the Hoff in it. And, yeah, and I'm sorry I nearly dropped a spoiler for those of you who haven't seen uh, Volume 2, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So, yeah, go check that out as well and, and see what I nearly see, – see the bomb I nearly dropped there. All right, all three of these movies we've discussed are available from Shout Factory. Uh, check us out on Facebook under our uh, other shows called Video Night, and this is kind of like a spinoff of it since Andrew doesn't like to talk about what he would be considering trashy movies. I love them. He doesn't. And, Kent, thank you again for coming on the show. Um, anything you want to plug before we go? No, Michael, it's always cool, man. Um, yeah, I hope we get to, uh, to do this again with some more uh, some great movies. I know that I sort of threw a list at you that uh, that you kind of like. So, um, yeah, I hope we get to do it all again. Yeah, you get and it. Yeah, you get it, uh, what trash you, cinema means. Uh, some other people don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, as far as myself, you know, uh, check out the books, people. Kent Hill, uh, Amazon.com, or you can find me on Facebook at, at, at KHP Scribbling, because that's what I do. And, um, you know, it's not really writing, it's scribbling. Um, so, yeah, I hope, you, uh, I hope you enjoy these movies as much as we do. Go and check them out if you haven't seen them. Please do it. All right, they are fantastic. Yeah. Check out his uh, my friend Nick Clement. He and him and his friend uh, Frank run this thing called Podcast Them Softly, which you also write for. Yes, totally. Uh, I do a lot of um, I do some reviews, but I, I've, I've done a lot of interviews in the last uh, eight months that I've been on there. Uh, you can check them out on the website www.podcastingthemsoftly.com. I've been very privileged to interview a lot of filmmakers that I really admire, from Richard Stanley to um, to guys like Paul Salmon, who's a really, really cool guy. If you don't know the work of Paul Salmon, you should. Uh, he wrote the quintessential making of book on Blade Runner called Future Noir, um, and he's worked on a ton of movies. He's also really cool. A big, uh, uh, a big tidbit that I got out of the interview is he's working on a book on the making of Dune, uh, uh, David Lynch's Dune. Which he was actually um, he was actually in the employ of the studio at the time, and he saw um, he saw all the crap that went on behind the scenes, and he's writing about it. It's called Blood on the Sand. Um, it's really cool. So yeah, check that out. Podcastingthemsoftly.com. Uh, we do regular podcasts like this one over there, um, but also um, you know we talk about uh, all kinds of movies, just like uh, Michael does. Um, some good, some bad. Some brilliant. Um, and, yeah, I, I've done a lot of interviews. So if you go on the website and type in Kent Hill, you'll see all of the uh, former uh, interviews that I've done with screenwriters and directors and composers and some really, really cool people. It's been an honour to speak to them. And it's as it is an honour to appear on Michael's show. I always look forward to it and I look forward to doing it again. Michael, thank you. All right. I tell you what, everybody, this will be the Summer of Trash Cinema, so it can... Just keep waiting. We'll have a whole season set up here uh, probably through September. Uh, it's really hard for me to record during the winter, so not so many episodes. But uh, thank you for patience uh, between seasons two and three, and uh, go out there and be mighty like Hercules. You're the only one that can do it. <laughs>
Hey everybody, welcome to Trash Cinema. We are now in season three. The difference is this season we're going to have a revolving cast. So uh, every few weeks we're going to have people coming in and out. They get to choose what they want to watch. They get to torture me or en en enlighten me on something that I thought maybe was trashy. Maybe it was a big box office bomb. But it turns out to be better than the critics say. This is different. My guest this week is Cameron Cooper who... Uh, just tell him what you suggested because I'm, I'm, I'm a little irritated. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, I'm Cam, and I guess I suggested the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, the not the good ones, the the Michael Bay ones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it took two attempts to get through the first one. I actually, literally, I'm going to tell you this. There's a point we're going to get to in part one where I said, "Fuck this, I'm out of here." <laughs> I turned it off and I had to try again <laughs> later. Uh, do you consider the original trilogy? Uh, all three entries to be like great or do you kind of like does it go downhill a little bit for you i mean the first one is to me is is great because they put the comics and the cartoon like together and it was like okay that's cool but like of course you know when you're a kid you didn't necessarily read the comics though but like you go back and you find out this is great this is some good shit it was a parody and shit but it was like this is some good stuff like in there as far as like what they did they took the good stuff out of the comics and put it in the movie the second one taking away the weapons and vanilla ice kind of kind of messed that up i remember then, uh, i saw the first one three times in the theater and i thought it was the greatest thing ever and then we went to the second one and i sat there about halfway through going uh i like the kid and uh, the jokes are still okay, but what's this? That's clearly supposed to be a bebop in Rock City. What is this bullshit? And what's Vanilla Ice doing here? It's like Vanilla. I like Nostalgia Critic when he goes like, "Oh, I think the ice is feeling something." <laughs> yeah, you and, get inspiration. That's why Vanilla Ice only had one hit. You get yeah, inspiration from from Ninja Turtles. Uh, but the, the third second one, one is fun to watch. Do you like the, the third, third one? one um, yeah. I mean, as a kid, okay, it's a funny story. When I went to visit my dad in North Carolina, I took that movie with me, and I lost it, and it devastated my whole world. <laughs> How old were you when it came out? I'm curious. It. it was, uh, I was like four. I think oh, I was four. Oh, yeah. you and I are much, um, I just hit 40, so I was in high school when the third one came out, so I had moved on by then. I went and saw Army of Darkness instead. That's a better choice. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so it but makes like, sense why the part three would devastate you. Because I was like, man, that's, it seems like you might be older than that, but I guess not. You were a kid. So the cartoon was still fresh for you when you were a little kid. You weren't like in middle school or high school yet. No, I was, in, I was still going to daycare. Oh, okay. So that's what we watched. We watched the Ninja Turtles cartoon and Batman anime series and all that. The third one, I think, is like, like when I got to high school and watched them, I'm like, this is freaking terrible, man. <laughs> I'm like, what happened? Because usually the movies get better, but like Jim Henson's Creature Shop did not do the animatronics. No, it's weird. Their that. heads are all jittery. Like they have like some sort of nervous disorder. You're like, what is going on here? I can't even look at them. It's like, and they mouth moves so crazy and quickly. Like, uh, 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 like the, <laughs> the lips never look, but <laughs> this was bad. Yeah, and the animated movie is fine. I don't, I don't mind that one. I think they actually kind of stick to the the true origins of like the first movie and somehow mix in some of the elements of the cartoon. If you've read the comic, the comic and the animated series are wildly different. 
Um, but the animated yeah. movie from what is it, like two thousand five or something like that? They kind of bring all the elements 2007, together. Seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah, I was in high school when that came out, and I remember me and my friend Marcus went to go see that one. I thought that was I thought that was okay. I think the problem with that isn't it didn't figure out where it wanted to be because I feel like it was trying to pick up where the other movies left off, plus do the the, the two thousand three cartoon that was on at the time. It didn't try to be its own things. Yeah, and it never just kind of really fit. Like, what, what is this? But the animation was good. I like the animation of it. Yeah, the uh, the sad part is that studio shut down. They did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Astro Boy, which both are fine. Uh, and I, it, it was sad to see that they went out of business soon after. Yeah, that's that's sad. They could have made some good. They could have made some better movies. Some good, good better movies. Um, they did. Uh, I will take the animated movie any day over these two new atrocities. <laughs> It was like, man, when I first saw the trailer for that, I was like, ugh, turtles look gross. Yeah, what the hell? They're the hideous looking. They're not that Jim Henson or animated adorable. They're kind of disgusting. Is this Battletoads? What is this? (laughs) Oh, jeez, Battletoads. Worst cartoon pilot ever. If you've ever seen on YouTube, it's the stuff of nightmares. Uh, This is how bad Battletoads is. So, I actually bought a VHS of Battletoads. But when you put it in the VHS tape, it's the really terrible Super Mario Brothers show that came on back in the day. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's not even Battletoads. <laughs> so they, the people who made it said, forget it. We're just going to throw in Mario Brothers. It won't upset anybody. It's like, like, oh, we found a way to get you. We found it. <laughs> <laughs> That's lame. Um, the minute I heard Michael Bay was even involved... I think all of us kind of knew, ah, shit. Because he's already screwed up Transformers. I know there's been five huge movies. I only consider one true Transformers film, and that's a 1986 animated film. Yeah, made one, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first Transformers was okay. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and, like, like, I didn't enjoy it when I saw it the first time. I thought, oh, this is awesome. Well, it's funny. It's actually funny compared to the other ones. Yeah, it's funny. And then... You go back and it's kind of like, okay, they kind of messed up here and there, but oh, whatever. When they got to the second one, it was like, yeah, they're, they're trying way too hard to push the the sex jokes and Megan Fox and all that dumb stuff. And it's like, still blowing up boobs and racist robot jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all four hours long. I don't, it's not The Hobbit, people. Even The Hobbit shouldn't have been as long as it was. We saw the third one, me and my buddy Joel, and the whole time, the whole climax, the whole climax is like 35 minutes. That whole climax was, the stuff keeps crashing down. We were like, oh my gosh, when is this going to be over? That's how I felt with these Ninja Turtle movies. Every sequence goes on and on and on. You're like, this doesn't need to be two hours. Seriously, edit this thing. You You know what it feels like? It feels like, you know how you go to the strip club and you... Like, it's VIP, and they say, oh, we're going to give you a whole 40 minutes of dancing. And it's like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> but it realize, you realize when you go back there, it's just her doing the same thing yeah, 10 for minutes 30 minutes. Like, uh, uh, I'm not even doing nothing. I'm exhausted. This is, <laughs> uh, this is like, it's boring, and she's heavy, and... At least she smells good. That's the big point. That's the big point. I've only been to a strip club once, and it was for a going away party. And I had the most awkward, insanely bony human being. And I'm already bony as it is. And she, and they're like, we'll pay for a lap dance. I'm like, oh, all right. And then she gets back there, and she does this thing where she's completely covered in like this weird veil. 
and she's not touching me. She's touching me. She's not touching me. Like she's like a teasing me, like a kid. I'm not touching you. Whole time grinding her hip into my knee. And I'm like, sweet shit, this hurts. <laughs> yeah. So the strip club. Like, that's, that's all the strip club is. It's a tease, and it's, it gets ridiculous. It's stupid. Yeah. Oh man. And it feels like this so with this movie. Club, you man. keep thinking something amazing is just around the corner, and they keep fucking it up. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think. Uh, I think, uh, what you think about, like, okay, so, in the original movie, it's like, the turtle, they kind of concede the turtles and hide them for a little bit, but then around, I timed it, around the seven minute mark, that's when they pop up, in the original one. Yeah. And then in this one, the new first one, I timed it, it's 30 minutes in, and you're finally seeing the turtles in full frame. Yeah, I don't know if they're trying so to build guys... a mystery. It seems like it worked in the first one really well. It just enough to tease you without like testing your patience. This one, it took forever to get going. And here's the problem: is the least interesting characters are on display. For I don't understand why they think that Will Arnett, who's not even part of the mythos, I don't think, uh, is funny and he needs to be focused on so much because he's irritating. And Megan Fox is a half-assed April O'Neil. I will take the original two. Uh, that were in the, uh, I don't even care if they're older now. I don't give a shit. Give me them. At least they can act. But somebody said, like, why does Megan Fox look different in every scene? They probably, <laughs> Her face just doesn't look, doesn't look the same. <laughs> it's, it's probably one of these movies where they decided to, uh, group focus every single bit. And every single time they talk to a group, they're like, oh, well, her, her face is too shiny. And they change it the next scene. Then someone review that and go, no, she has too much make. Oh, her hair, you know? And it's just one of these things where it feels like it's group focused to death. It is. She, I, I thought she did an okay job. Oh, I don't think she was the worst part of the movie. I mean, it's not good acting or nothing like that, but, but she's, I thought she was okay for what. Yeah, I was what surprised. Got out of yeah, but like Will Arnett, well, the character is in the mythos in the cartoon. He was the cameraman, but he was a lot different than, in the cartoon than he was in the movie. In the cartoon, he was just like, "Oh, I'm gonna get the big scoop on April. Oh, I'm gonna denounce her, and she's not gonna get the big scoop." And in this one, is like, "I'm gonna bang the shit out of April O'Neil. This is making fun." What's this rating again? <laughs> Say what? Yeah. It's just like one of those things where, like, how far past PG-13 do we want to go? Do we want to go into R? I mean, we could go back to the original source of the comics. No, it's not. This movie costs $120 million. We can't do that. <laughs> like, little kids want to see it. Come on. <laughs> All right. So while we're talking about this, I'm going to tell you the point where I said, fuck this, I'm out of here, is when they were fighting Shredder. I think it was Shredder versus Splinter. And Shredder pulls out these huge blades, which are cool enough as they are and hard to buy already. But then it expands Wolverine style, and he starts shooting the blades everywhere. What? No. No. Stop it. <laughs> it's like, exactly where did they get that? How can they afford it? And what? It's not even a good, necessarily, weapon. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, he's supposed to be this ninja. He's supposed to be this ninja master. But, like, he got to use the detractable blades to get his point across. That's stupid. <laughs> Was that a joke? Point across. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would actually... Like, that's the thing about the first movie is it was low budget, so they had to use real stuntmen. They had to use uh, real martial arts. And you believed it. It was great. I, I just watched it not that long ago, and I said, this movie's still amazing after 25-something years. And yet I watched the new one going, none of this has any like risk or danger or excitement to it. It's just fake. Yeah, you can tell it's not real. And it's like, the martial arts ain't even that, that cool. 
choreographed wise. It's like you can barely see anything that's going on, really. Well, there's no actual they, martial they got... arts. It feels like it was all like a generic mix of certain movements, but it's all done in a computer. Well, that's what I love about the first movie is you had guys out there designing right. this based on whatever uh, Jeet Kune Do or whatever. I think each turtle had its own style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really cool. You could saw you like even in those big rubber suits, it was like this is a, this is kind of impressive. Because I'm like I'm gonna, I got you guys be like those aren't light or whatever. This it must be hard to move in those and to see. Yeah. Like I saw a making of it, and like the only thing they could see was out of two little holes. So I was like, "Dang, that's impressive." You got to admire the ingenuity of it. This one, yeah, it was all done in CGI and stuff like that, and it's not even good CGI. It's like, dang, there's video games that have way better <laughs> CGI than this. Uh, admittedly, PS1 I think it looks better. better. <laughs> I think it looks better in the second movie because there's a certain sequence where they're out in the streets talking to the cops, and I was like, "Hey, shit, that actually looks." Like it's believable, but the first movie, no, it's really piss poor animation. Yeah, I think it's like because second movie, like they brighten up the color palette, so you can kind of see you can see them in more full frame. Yeah, and knowing what they already look like, it's like okay, we accept this. The uh, did you like the first one better? Did you like the first one or the second one better? I I, I know you like any of them. Um, so the second one, the first half, I I started getting into, but once it got. Once it went beyond just Bebop and Rocksteady and they started focusing on Krang and this huge invasion, I actually started to like grab my phone and kind of roll through it. I'm checking the box office on this movie, checking the cast. I'm like, oh, they, that guy, they changed Johnny, Johnny Knoxville? and they, Okay, okay, I see. And uh, and then I found myself going, oh, the movie's over. Shit, how long have I been on my phone? Damn it, now I have to rewind and watch it again. So uh, I will say um, the second one, just because there's a lot going on, but not good, a lot going on. I don't know. There's no way to win on this one. I can't pick. It's boring. <laughs> I like, who does see the second one with? Oh, me and my buddy Zach, we saw the second one. And it was kind of like, okay, uh, okay, they show the turtles right out. That's cool. And getting into it, it was like, it, it like it, it's like, there's no plot to this. It's like, the only kind of conflict in there is like, we can be human. We can be human stuff. There's this ooze that will make us human. And then the crane stuff, but like the crane stuff gets all like right away. It's just like, okay, just shut down the portal and call it a day. But other than that, it's like nothing really going on. And it, it, people be like, what? Well, what you mean? Because they got the big river scene with Bebop and Rocksteady and they fight and whatnot. But it's like there's nothing interesting really going on. It's all really lame plot and just like it's not good conflict. It's just let's put something in there to call it a movie. Yeah, and, and the action sequences. They have to be memorable. You know, they have to stick out because there's so many of them now in these big budget movies. It can seem like just nonstop chaos if you don't remember each setup, and each setup has to have like a point. Like I always think the Mission Impossible movies have found a way to make each action sequence original and exciting, and it still drives the plot forward. But a lot of these big budget yeah. movies, it's just constant noise and chaos, but it doesn't really do anything. That's basically every Michael Bay movie ever. Kind of, except I actually am fond of Pain and Gain. That movie is kind of insane, and it's mostly because of the cast, uh, not so much because of the director. Yeah. It's like it's like you just had like the setup, and then there's some something conflict, and then this big action sequence that's like, exactly how did we get here? <laughs> and then the end, and it's like, how did we get here, man? This is weird. Like, I watched Bad Boys the other day, and my friend's like, you don't like Bad Boys? Oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's like, yeah, it started out with like, okay, there's missing drugs, and they have to protect this girl, but they got to switch identities. It's like, how did we get there? This is so dumb. 
I remember we went and saw the first one in the theaters, and I thought it ended well. Mind you, I was 18 at the time, and all I wanted was, like, insane action. But I remember going, okay, this ended well. Why didn't he just blow up? Why do we have to have that sequence where he takes him out of the car, and he's like, don't do it, man, don't do it, you're a cop. And he goes, I'm going to do it. Oh, oh. And, he, and then he, like, pulls a gun at the last second. I was like, ah, bullshit. And the second one, I know people who swear by the second movie, and I think it's just fucking garbage. It's like... I remember, like, my mom took me to see the second one, and we had to walk out because it was <laughs> too much for her with all the violence and the cussing. Yeah, well, did and she then, make it uh, to the sequence where the two rats are having sex? There's a movie where people have are watching rats fuck! <laughs> <laughs> it was like, what was it? <laughs> me and my buddy, we were like, okay, why? Where did that come from? It's like, <laughs> let's get some comedy. Let's watch two rats fuck. It's like, it's just... so stupid. It's a head scratcher. I'm just, I'm at a loss. Um, I'm looking at the directors of these two movies, and, you know, Michael Bay pretty much is directing these anyway, but they got to have somebody actually yeah. behind the camera um, telling people what to do. But uh, Jonathan Liebsman, who did, uh, I think he did Battle Los Angeles, which is a decent movie, and I can see why. Even I would sign on to do a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, no matter how bad or good the script is, because I'm like, holy shit, I get to play in that, you know, sandbox. Yeah, I mean they're fun. Ninja Turtles are fun. That's what it's meant to be. It's not like you don't. It's like you can tell good stories with Ninja Turtles. They don't have to be deep or thoughtful or anything. It's fun. It's turtles. It started out as a parody, but it's supposed to be funny, you know. And so I would I would do something with it too if I was a director. But like, um, yeah, Jonathan Leesman, I think he was more of the visionary type dude, and then the other guy that directed the second one, David Green. I think that's his name. Oh yeah, yeah, Earth David Echo, Green. I think. Is what he's known for. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's or Deco. He's a little bit more of the you know, you know, kind of the scenery type thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was. I think the first one. Um, well, the first one. I think uh, when they got to say the camaraderie with the turtles. First of all, what do you think about that? Um, you mean with, between the humans and the turtles? No, just between the turtles. In general. Um, I, I liked the voice acting better in the first movie, not just because of Johnny Knoxville, because I just felt like the direction, whoever was doing the voiceover work, really had them play off each other, where I, I didn't feel like there was a connection in the second one. But I do like in the second one when they call Splinter Dad, and that kind of solidifies the relationship. Yeah. I don't recall them doing that in the first one. No, they no, they didn't. And at one point, I remember, like, when they introduced the Turtles, and, like, Raph and Leo Argan, he was like, who put you in charge? You know who did. And I'm like... Are they talking about Splinter or are they talking about something else? Like, like, are they working for a supervillain? That's what it kind of <laughs> sounds like. Uh, They're it, probably working for the Shredder. <laughs> yeah, if you go back to the original movies, that is the cast for me. Uh, that Corey Feldman, you know, as Donatello is still my favorite. I love Mikey in that movie. Raph's got the attitude. And uh, Leonardo, he's like that guiding force. I did not feel that in the new movies at all. I just felt like they were there. But they didn't have that balance yeah. of each one having a unique, but yet it all works together like a puzzle. And all the pieces come together. And that's the big strength of Ninja Turtles stories. It's like they're all different personalities, but like one has a weakness and the other has a strength that makes up for the weakness of the other ones. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this one, it was just kind of like in this in these movies, it's kind of like they're just they're just goofy acting and stuff like that. But I'll tell you my favorite scene in it when they're in the elevator and then <laughs> they do the. And see Mikey, <laughs> and then they all do the clash of the, the weapons. Like I thought, that's a that's a cute scene. That was kind of that was really funny. Yeah. Other than that, it was just like 
<laughs> those kind of movies need the quiet stuff to balance it out. There's so many big movies that forget that you need to have... Uh, if you're constantly pounding away at something, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you kind of take a break, come back, break, come back. It's you know, it's kind of like a workout. The characters have to have these quiet, personal moments in order for you to care about the rest of it. Yeah, even if we still in some Ninja Turtle movies, even if you go back and watch the original one, there's like you know the quiet scenes like where Leonardo's in the in the woods, he's like meditating, mm-hmm. and then he links, he like brain links or whatever with Splinter. He's like that's a good scene. It like it takes away from the action, but it's like there's a necessary there's a necessary thing for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, when Raph's in the tub unconscious and they're watching over him and he's drawing the pictures, that is that scene right there makes the movie to me. When they're at the cabin trying to recuperate and refocus. Yeah, they got some good they got some good drama in there. Not drama to where it's like oh really over the top, but it's like it's good quiet scenes to like balance out the other stuff that's going on in there. Yeah, and like you said, in these in these new ones, they don't have that. It's just straight like action, blow up, blow up, blow up, blow up, turtles and shredder and bebop and rocksteady and Megan Fox with her belly showing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the second one didn't make anywhere nearly as much money as the first one, so I'm pretty sure this is the end of the franchise, at least in a live action form. Of course, the cartoon's still going. I haven't seen the new cartoon, but I know people are crazy about it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. I saw like the first episode. I was still in college. I saw the first episode and I was kind of like, okay, this is a sort of a new take on it, but I'm like, this is a little bit too. I like 2003 cartoon myself. I felt this is a little too kiddish for me. Uh-huh. I had to watch more episodes, more episodes to get into it. I'm like, okay, okay, they actually got some good storylines here. And um, they did a crossover episode with the turtles from the original cartoon, the 80s cartoon, in one episode. How did that happen? A wormhole or something? It's like, the storyline goes, basically Krang sort of destroyed the whole world, so now New York is sort of like a wasteland, huh. and the turtles are surviving in space with the Fugitoid, and then they're trying to save their world and recreate it, recreate New York to what it was and go back in time, but the transport sent them to another dimension, the turtles from the 80s universe, and the cool thing about it was they had the animation switched. Like when the new turtle, like the the new one is like CGI animation, mm-hmm. and like the, when the turtles turtles go to the A's cartoon, they go into the two D animation. Nice. And then vice versa, vice versa. That was the cool part about it. That's like a love letter to the old fans. Um, how do you feel about Tyler Perry in the sequel? I just forgot. I was looking at this on Wikipedia, <laughs> and I forgot he was even in the sequel. I forgot about him. Oh yeah, he was. It was like at first when I heard about that, I was like, oh, okay, please don't let it be like. Them Tyler Perry movies where it's like, <laughs> like, like Casey Jones starts beating up April O'Neil and, <laughs> and somebody, somebody on crack, and <laughs> like they gotta find Jesus and like, <laughs> like is this a Ninja Turtles movie? What is this? And nobody yelled Hallelujah. <laughs> I actually kind of like, liked Will Arnett as Casey Jones, but I feel like they got his character completely wrong based on what I've seen of the character. It was nice to see him. I remember my, my co-host on Back in Tunes was so excited that it was going to be Stephen Amell. And, uh, you know, I've been a big fan of Casey Jones, and I watched it, and I was like, man, it's okay, but it's not what I was hoping for. I mean, well, I think, see, uh, I, didn't, I didn't hate his character, but at the same time, it was kind of like, his character was just kind of there. It was kind of like, this movie could have done without him in it. He's more there for fan service. That's what I felt like. Yeah. 
he's like it could have done better it could have it, it could have just done the film's purpose without him being there there's like no reason for him to be there they could have just thrown somebody else in there and not have to even call him casey jones it'd be the same character well, I think the mystery of who and, he is in the first one works better. Where they I, they gave him all this backstory that I felt was completely unnecessary with him being a security guard, and then you know I was like, no, just ditch that. Yeah. See, in the original one, it was kind of like he's just this weird random dude that just comes out and just beats up criminals for whatever reason, <laughs> and he's a crazy psychopath. But he's like, hey, I get the job done. <laughs> and then, and then uh, in this one, he's just kind of like. Like I'm gonna be a detective someday. You just watch. And like <laughs> that okay, sounds tough. When is, when is the Disney song gonna come out? This is some Bell shit right here. This is some Disney Princess shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So like, I, I, we're at the end of the episode here. So me personally, I cannot recommend the new ones. I say go watch the originals. Uh, even after all these years, it still holds up. The first one has still that dark, grimy, like kind of grindhouse, New York-y, independent feel, which is perfect for the comic book. Yeah. Can you recommend either one of the new ones? No. <laughs> Say, you want to do Ninja Turtles, watch the old ones. No, don't don't, don't watch these. If you want to do super movies, don't watch these either. So, yeah, no recommendation. Thumbs down. All right, so we're at the end of the episode. Everybody check us out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. And Cameron, what do you have coming up you want to promote? Uh, Wrigley Tuesday night, open mic, stand-up comedy. Show starts at 8 o'clock. Uh, come out if you want to laugh. I'll do, some, I'll do five minutes. But we got other comedians there, and they'll do five minutes, and it'll be a good time. So, And rest in peace to the last string, open mic. We'll find somewhere else. All right, and that, all this is in Fort Wayne, correctly? Correct. Correctly? That's not even yes. a word. I made up a word. <laughs> yeah, it's a four-way. So. Okay. All right, everybody. Um, have a good night. And the only way to end this is with the perfect Ninja Turtle song. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to this all the time as a kid. <laughs> <laughs>